right, and we are back to once again explore faith and pursue grace. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass, and joining us is one of my favorite guests that we have had on this program. He is an eminent scholar from Oklahoma City, and I messed up his name the first time that we had him on. I'm not going to do it again. Brother Grant Testu is with us. We are so glad to have you back, man. Thanks for having me again. Yeah. Yeah. We had you on uh, last year, and we had an awesome discussion about the multivocality of the uh, Hebrew Bible, of the Bible just in general, in and of itself. But we really focused on the Hebrew Bible. And man, that was one of the most fun conversations I've ever had. It was really, really enjoyable. Kevin and I loved having you on, and we are really excited to have you back on tonight to talk about something that Kevin and I have wanted to discuss for a while, and it's been difficult to find the right person to discuss this with. And Kevin said, well, what if we just have Grant back on to, to talk with him about? And I said, brother, that sounds awesome because, man, our conversation last time was a lot of fun. We really enjoyed it. And we're, Same we're, here. we're really happy that you're willing to come back on our program and take more time out of your probably incredibly busy life just to talk to us to yahoos who don't really know what we're talking about half the time. So we're, we're excited to have you back. And, and what we're going to talk about tonight is the Canaanite conquest that we read about in the Hebrew Bible. Specifically, we're going to talk about passages that have given Christians grief for a very, very, very long time. And that is the genocides. The genocides are they're difficult just to say the least there are a lot of people that take great issue with the genocide passages as they're found in the old testament they they struggle with that the idea that a loving god full of grace and mercy and compassion for mankind would essentially tell israel to to follow the instructions of the the great prophet james hetfield and lars ulrich and go into canaan and kill them all as Metallica was fond of saying, you know, they're rolling up in there with seek and destroy blasting at full volume coming out of the Ark of the Covenant had a Bluetooth speaker. Anyway, it's sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm being silly now, but, <laughs> but a lot of people look at these passages and it gives them a lot of trouble. It, it gives them a lot of, of consternation. There are a lot of atheists that have used these passages as an illustration that God is not good, that God is not the loving God that, that Christians and Jews claim him to be. So what do we do with that? And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight are the genocides. It's going to be a probably a heavy conversation at some points. Uh, some of what we discuss may get graphic, so I, I don't really know how it's going to go. But if that's the case, you guys may want to make sure you don't have any little ears around just in case. So uh, anyway, we're excited. This is going to be a good talk. Yeah, and when we talk about just the genocides in general, that's already making a statement about what we're talking about, right? Because there are Christians who would claim, well, these are not genocides at all. Uh, this is this is not what we're talking about. Let's let's completely reframe this and understand it in a different way. And they do that in hopes to soften what these texts explicitly say. And I, for, for years, quite frankly, and this is going to sound horrible, I know, to my audience, and, and probably to you as well, but... <laughs> I didn't have a problem with these texts. And the main reason why is because I just simply accepted it for what it was. I didn't question God. I didn't believe you could question if what the Bible quote unquote clearly teaches. And so for me, I was content with just saying, Hey, this is what the Bible says. God's ways are higher than my ways. I just trust in God. I don't lean on my own understanding. And so, yeah, while this sounds horrible, 
where God is attributed to commanding the Jews to go in and wipe out not just other people or other nations, but specifically killing women, killing children. When you read Deuteronomy, they're going in and they're killing the—oftentimes they're they're killing, of course, men, but then later on, and we're going to get into this in the episode as well, if there were times they didn't kill everyone and they would take their their wives at times, and uh, we see that in Deuteronomy 24, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 20, I believe, and— you know they would uh, they would embarrass them, humiliate them. Um, if if you know they basically would make them grieve for a month and have sex with them. If they didn't like them, they would send them away. And you're like, wow, okay, this is this is all from from God's heart. <laughs> this is all from from God's mind here. And a lot of people aren't too familiar with this. And they may have heard of this. Even Christians, they may have read through it, but they've been told to read it with certain a certain lens in mind that softens it or puts it far out of reach where, oh, well, that happened thousands of years ago. Today, God would never ask anybody to do that. But that was a different place. That was a different time. And we just have to trust in God. And if that's what God commanded, then we just have to accept that. And so for, for years to me, this was just the wrath of God. That's how I understood this is that, well, God is is love, He's but he's also wrath. And this is just the wrath of God manifested. And that's a pretty scary view if you think about it because of where that can lead. And I just want to start this conversation, Grant, to really open the floor to you to discuss when you think about the genocides, what are some, what what is kind of the current traditional understanding of these passages, especially among those who may not call them genocides, maybe among some of the more conservative Christians? What, what, is, what is kind of that traditional view, at least today, of these passages? Well, I, I think you guys could speak to that even better than I can in some cases. Uh, I mean, I, I came from uh, a Christian background that uh, encouraged me to look at all scriptures on this equal plane. This is all the word of God uh, with not much more said in terms of discernment between uh, how, how do you pick out the, the better ethics from the text uh, except to say, perhaps, uh, that as in many uh, Protestant-based churches these days in, in the U.S., uh, you get that general sense that, okay, we get more of our ethic out of the New Testament than the Old. Uh, so that t- tends to be an oversimplification, but, but it still holds <laughs> out, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, and so I, I think that's uh, that, that might resonate with others as well, but that feels like my upbringing, at least. Um, yeah. From the inside of things, uh, I felt as though I, I you know, like much like you, Kevin, I didn't understand all of the why. But I thought, OK, if this is if this is the voice of God commanding, go forth and slaughter, kill all of these men, women, children, young and old, uh, then he must have had a reason that is good. Uh, and and uh, the plan has changed since then. <laughs> and so. And so uh, you know, at the best of times, I might have shelved it in my youth and said, okay, maybe we'll figure that out later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at least I know that Christ sends me forth to love my en- enemies. Uh, and and so <laughs> thankfully, in the midst of, of the cacophony of voices that come out of the Bible, like we talked about last time, uh, I could at least discern Christ has this loving mission uh, for his His followers. And so we don't take up the sword uh, if anything, the sword gets turned toward us, you know, and, and, uh, 
so I could at least spot that 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 difference. Well, that that's a great way of putting it because I feel exactly the same way as far as my upbringing and even up until probably five, four, even four or five years ago, this was just something I didn't really look at a whole lot because, well, I'm just I'm just a follower of Jesus, so I don't really have to think about that. Just out of sight, out of mind, and it's there, but I don't have to really think about it much. I don't have to explore it. I can just say, well, that's Old Testament, <laughs> mm-hmm. and really oversimplify it, which is very unfortunate because that minimizes the issue, and it also really dismisses the, the, the a large part of the Bible, <laughs> um, because you're not, you know, you're, you're not just saying, well, this is just this one verse. I mean, you're talking about what is viewed as Israel, a large chunk of Israel's history, uh, especially as they're getting started. And a lot of the, not just later passages in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, allude to a lot of these types of things. Maybe not so much specifically, but at least generally. And so to say, well, that's just Old Testament, I just follow Jesus. Well, that's great. And I believe that too, that we need to follow Jesus, but we have to do something with that because Jesus did believe that what we know as the Old Testament was Scripture. Jesus viewed it as Scripture. And so that that is a big point, too, I want to make. You know, Jesus yeah. didn't say, ha, this is Old Testament. <laughs> let's, let's, let's not even fool with that anymore. I mean, he really, he, he quoted from, from these books. Uh, he made appeals to these books. But I think the mistake we make is if since Jesus read the Old Testament, he must have read the Old Testament like I read the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Or since Jesus interpreted the Old Testament, he must have interpreted the Old Testament just like I interpret the Old Testament. And that's a big mistake that we make. We assume, we inject that, oh, well, that's that's Jesus is reading the Bible just like I read the Bible. And uh, obviously that's a whole other podcast we could talk about probably for, for hours. But just getting back to this idea, you know, this does seem, Lee, as you talked about, problematic no matter which way you slice it, right? Because there's different views. And before we got started, we were talking about some of these different views. So we've we've really talked about just that general view that this is what happened. Well, this is literal history. This is what God commanded. We don't understand it, but it's in the Bible, so we just accept it. Okay, that's kind of that, that view that I think probably, at least from my perspective, a lot of my conservative evangelical friends take. But there's also some other views that I've tried to dig a little bit deeper and give some alternative explanation. And Lee, I know you've studied one view in particular that I just want to want you to share with the audience just for a couple minutes. Yeah, absolutely. And like you, this was not something that really bothered me until honestly, just maybe about a year and a half or two years ago. Mm-hmm. This isn't something that really stirred up any trouble for me. It wasn't anything that shook my faith growing up because God's God. He can do whatever he wants. If he tells people to go kill other people, well, then you better go kill them because he's God, right? And f- for me, the, I didn't see the, the, the disconnect or the dissonance that exists between what we see represented in Jesus, as, as you were saying, Grant, and what we see manifest itself in terms of these conquest passages. And it wasn't until I really started to learn to love like Jesus and start seeing others. And by others, I don't just mean people that think like me and look like me and talk like me. I mean, others, everybody who has been, maybe we might say otherized. Whenever I started seeing them as people, that's when these passages started to become an issue. And yeah, yeah. Let, let, let me say one thing, too, because I want to make bro. sure I'm setting this this up properly for you, because... 
I want to explain to the audience and make sure they understand why we believe that these passages are so problematic. Because ultimately, you know, it's it's one thing in, to say that God is God and God can do whatever he wants to. Okay, that in and of itself, unqualified, sure, that's a true statement. Here's the problem. If Jesus is God manifested in the flesh, and Jesus taught that we're to love our enemies, Jesus taught that we're to have compassion on our enemies. And he's the Je- full representation of yes, God. Yes, mm-hmm. then now we do have attention. You know, it's, it, it'd be one thing to say, hey, this is just God. This is just who he is. I mean, if, if God wants to hate, he can hate. If God wants to destroy, he can destroy. If, if God wants to hate enemies, he can hate enemies. Okay, that's fine. But the problem is when Christians, and we're Christians, look at the Bible and look at Jesus and say, wait a minute, Jesus is teaching to love our enemies. Jesus is saying that we don't need to retaliate. Jesus is saying that we we need to forgive, we need to love. When put on the cross, when God was put on the cross, and we sing that song, he could have called 10,000 angels. Uh, he didn't. And you know, the fact that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, that's, that is vastly different than do not allow your eye to pity them. Destroy them, man, woman, child. Even if a child in a mother's womb, it doesn't matter. Destroy them all. Why? Well, because they're enemies and they're on territory that should be yours. And then you parallel that to Jesus and you go, huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Come, come again? <laughs> well, one of the passages or, or one of the uh, explanations for this that's been bandied about for a very long time um, and I guess we'll just start here is these genocides, if they happen, and that's something we may talk about later, is that they happen because of the concept of sacred space, sacred geography, and the land that Israel was promised by God to Abraham that they you know, had every right to claim because of, of a divine mandate that this is a land that was possessed by other people. And the issue wasn't that it was possessed by other people and these people that possess it needed to be killed. It's the origin that these people came from. One of the positions is what I'll just call the Nephilim view. And the idea with the Nephilim view is if you take a look at Genesis chapter six, it talks right before the flood happens. There's something apparently that makes God really upset. And Grant, if you have, you know, better clarity to provide for this, or if I get something wrong, please, please chime in and feel free to do so. Um, but my understanding of this view is that, you know, the sons of God, they came down to lay with the daughters of men. And there's several different ways that that has been understood. It's been understood in a lot of ways to mean that this is just talking about the Israelites, the sons of God, marrying the daughters of men. That is the uh, the Canaanites and the people of other cultures and they're intermarrying and and crossing those boundaries and they're intermarrying with these Gentiles and Canaanites and everything else. And God didn't like that. Well, the other view is, is that the sons of God is a reference to other divine beings and the daughters of men is a reference to humans. And so you're ending up with these divine human hybrids. You might call them, uh, uh, what is it, uh, demigods. I think the word that's used is the refame or reframe. I, I, I'm not 100% sure yeah, this has been so, well since I read know, it. What you're mentioning is uh, one of the many Semitic terms for the what, what amounts to the same thing. Uh, and, and I do think you're right that demigods coming from the Greek, ancient Greek perspective, uh, is at least a near equivalent, if not an exact equivalent, uh, cool. because, you know, we can compare how Good those job, stories Lee. are told. 
you know, we, yeah. Well, you, you hear about the, the, the various gods who come down and have relations with humans. Uh, and then you get these children born who are half God, half human, uh, people like Achilles. Uh, and what do they do? Well, you don't want to meet them on the battlefield uh, because, because it's, it just takes one of them to you know, slice with his sword and a and hundred of you go down uh, because he's got at least partial uh, godlike powers. And so based on both that Nephilim passage in Genesis 6, as well as uh, the, the occasional mention of these Nephilim, also known as the Anakim, or you know, the sons of Anak, and, and the Rephaim is yet another term. Uh, that's a term you even see in ancient Ugaritic Bronze Age texts, uh, which oh, shows wow. you that other groups were talking about some of these same uh, entities of hmm. the, the heroes of old, uh, gods among men, uh, you know, is a great phrase that we use these days, which yeah. captures well the, the idea, even if to some That's degree, the phrase I use when I'm talking about you. Well, thank you. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, to, to you to, or to us, I mean, I you wear my clothes now. I'm just a man. I'm mortal. Yeah. Our audience loves it when we actually have someone with yeah. credentials on our program. They're like, yes, I love it, man. Finally, someone who knows what they're talking Finally, about. Finally, sco- yeah. scholars among little Bible students. Yes, we well, love it. Well, uh, and that right there, Grant, that's so interesting to me because the in this, in essence, the Nephilim view is that you have these 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 human divine hybrids mm-hmm. that have gone into the land and that's who God wants Israel to obliterate. He doesn't want them to necessarily kill all of the Canaanites. Because, of course, they don't kill all of the Canaanites, but he wants them to to obliterate all of these divine offspring from these sons of God that let, laid with the daughters of men. But I didn't know that this was something that goes even further back to the Ugaritic. That's incredibly interesting to me. Well, yeah, and, and you know, I, I would qualify that you know, within those texts that talk about the conquest, sweeping in, killing everyone, uh, you will you will see in some of them for sure references to these Anakim, uh, the sons of Anak. Uh, but that's where we want to be careful because uh, those texts don't don't spell out that you're you're going in just to wipe out a particular bloodline um, that is is demigod in nature. Uh, in, in fact, in many of the texts that talk about wiping out all the Canaanites and Hittites and Hivites and Perizzites and Jebusites, dot, 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 um, that in some of those texts, uh, the Anakim are not even mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, which would suggest that we, if we want to entertain that theory, we want to, be, we want to hold it very tentatively uh, at, at best, um, because if anything, it sounds like there is just a general hatred toward uh, this cluster of groups living in that region of Syria, Palestine, uh, more specifically in in the regions of Canaan, uh, and that among them, of course, you you get the the tales of these these giants among men. Even if not all of them are understood literally as giants, but but again, Achilles-like figures, and what that does for the narrative, certainly of Joshua, especially because. Um, uh, as the text continues, Joshua himself will will wipe out a number of these these sons of Anak. Uh, basically, what that does in terms of thinking of this these texts as literature is it bolsters Joshua's image. 
In other words, yeah. he comes across as an even more impressive hero that he faced down uh, those demigod-like figures uh, because he trusted in Yahweh. Yeah. Well, and I can definitely see how that would be the case. And, and Kevin, sorry, I just, I, I feel like that I'm kind of getting ahead of things here by diving right into this. And I feel like I need to back up a little bit. So if I can back up just a little bit for a little bit more context, and then I'll, I'll hand it over to you, Kevin, to, we'll, we'll bring it back around. But um, the, the issue is, like I said, I feel like I jumped ahead a little bit. The issue is, is that we have this passage, like we talked about earlier, in which there are divinely given instructions to go and obliterate people, go and kill people, men, women, children, don't pity them, like it says there in Deuteronomy. And the issue with that is, you know, how do we, how do we relate that to what we know about the nature of God? How do we take care of that? And this is one of those ways that people have done that in viewing the nephilim the you know the children of anak these are you know these divine hybrids they god doesn't want anything to do with them he they're in the land that god has promised to israel they need to be obliterated and cast out of the land into our modern sensibilities that's that's a terrible thing and i would say that objectively it's a terrible thing mm-hmm. and Kevin, I would wonder what your thoughts would be and and grant you as well about this being an accommodation to them, because that's another explanation that's been given as well, mm-hmm. is that this is God accommodating the perspective of those people in terms of going in and obliterating these bloodlines. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's where I would say it's it's ironic that when we try to find a justification that makes it more palatable like that, you know, we're, we're trying to make sense of this, um, what, what sounds like an atrocity, just wiping out entire people groups. If we fall back on, oh, okay, this was a, a group of mixed parentage, uh, you know, half divine, uh, the, the irony is that we end up doing what perpetrators of genocides have done throughout human history, mm. yeah. uh, which, which is, and, and this is a good reminder to us. I mean, we're, we're not trying to demonize anyone here uh, and to admit that all of us, I think, have wrestled with this at various times. Um, but we want to realize that we have it within ourselves and each of us, that capacity, if we're, if we're not cautious and, and aware of it, to so readily demonize our fellow humans uh, and, and the point is that nobody goes out there committing a genocide, rubbing their hands together, like the old, uh, you know, silent, uh, picture shows with the, you know, yeah, you have the, the handlebar mustached villain, uh, with his top hat and, you know, Jim and Sonic, man, that's all I can think of right. right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the damsel, you know, tied on the railroad tracks. Ah, nobody does that, you know, I mean, except for <laughs> the rare few who, you know, might have some chemical imbalance that, you know, this happens too, but, <laughs> but, but honestly, you know, for, for many people who, who perpetrate, uh, mass killings of, of another group of people, um, they can't even stomach that within themselves if they are forced to see the humanity of these other people. Mm-hmm. The only yeah. way that anybody can carry that deed out in the end is usually over a gradual process of growing distaste, um, a growing mischaracterization of that other group using often enough language like, you know, they're mixed blood, this and that. Uh, and and when that is allowed to simmer long enough, 
uh, eventually it'll produce things like the Holocaust uh, or any number of, of genocides over the course of human history. Well, yeah. I mean, at that point, justified hatred can be understood as righteous indignation. And are not justified hatred, but pure hatred can become justified or righteous indignation because, well, I've got a reason now. I'm justified in what I'm doing. This isn't just mm. hate for hate's sake. This is hate. This is righteous indignation. I've got I've got a reason to be able to do this. And as you pointed out, this is something that people have always used to justify their actions toward others when they when they want to commit some sort of atrocity, some sort of cruelty against another, is if there's a way to dehumanize that individual, it becomes a lot easier. And, you know, the Spanish Christians, of course, they ravished all sorts of the indigenous peoples in the Americas uh, and their Portuguese counterparts as well. And I just want to read this because we have an account that gives us quite a bit of detail from a man by the name of Bartolome de la Casas. And he wrote in his brief account of the devastation of the Indies, this is what he said, this is in the 16th century, he said, They took infants from their mother's breast, snatching them by the legs and pitching them headfirst against the crags or snatched them by the arms and threw them into the rivers, roaring with laughter and saying as the babies drowned in the water, Boil there, you offspring of the devil. And then he goes on to talk a little bit more um, how they made some low gallows on which the hanged victims' feet almost touched the ground, stringing up their victims in lots of 13 in memory of our Redeemer and his 12 apostles. Then they would turn, uh, then they would set burning wood at their feet and they would burn them alive. We can estimate very truly and truthfully that in the 40 years that have passed with the infernal actions of the Christians, there have been unjustly slain more than 12 million men, women, and children. In truth, however, I believe without trying to deceive myself that that number is more like 15 million. Um, you know, and some believe he may have obviously been exaggerating there. But the point is that one of the reasons why they were able to do this is because they believe that they were the offspring of the devil. Mm -hmm. And when you can attribute your actions to righteousness and say, well, look, I know this sounds bad, but I was doing what needed to be done. I mean, they were the offspring of the devil. And 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 there's been a lot of times throughout human history where someone killed someone they love, they killed their children, they killed other people because they were somehow convinced at or brainwashed even or conditioned in a cult to believe that their family had Satan blood. And this is a very similar view to that. Now, whether the Jews actually believe that's that's the case, I personally don't think there's enough evidence there to to argue that. Um, I mean, it's it's possible. Uh, I mean, there's people who've studied that view a whole lot more than I have. But I've talked to a few of my friends who hold that position, and I'm just I'm just really not convinced by that view because it just seemed like they just hated the Canaanites. They, they weren't even trying to go after a specific reason <laughs> as to why. I think that they would have said, this is Satan's blood. We need, we, we need to get rid of it. It was, this is our territory. God's commanded us to, to destroy them, and we're going to do what God says, more of just as an act of obedience to God. Um, so whether that's there, whether that wasn't there uh, as a motivation, you know, I don't know. I, personally, I just don't see it, as, as Grant pointed out earlier, Several of those texts, it doesn't mention them at all. It just speaks of the Canaanites, generally speaking. And then you also have times where it would seem that the Nephilim are, uh, or at least at least um, could potentially be within context, but then they're not destroyed. 
And so they continue on. And so what do you do with that? And then you have the question, well, are they still here today? Is, is, <laughs> and if they are, then if they're still running around, would I have justification to kill them? Fess up. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, all right, where are you? You know, you spawn a Satan. We're coming, exploring faith, going to explore you, you know. But it's it's just one of those things that, you know, it, it's it sounds good to an extent because it kind of softens. It's like, oh, okay, well if these weren't really full humans and this was just really like the spawn of Satan, well then I guess killing them wouldn't be that bad. So it takes a difficult text and it puts it in a light that makes it maybe a little bit, to me that's still pretty difficult to swallow, but it perhaps makes it a little bit easier to swallow. And so just wanted to, to first bring that up and uh, talk about that to, to make sure, you know, that, that view is at least out there. And there's a lot of different folks who've written on that, uh, but that is one perspective that people take. But ultimately, there's a lot of views out there that are on the genocides um, that do try to soften it. And I wanted to just mention one more, and then we'll really get into the context here. Uh, But that view is the view that says the command... So so we're leaving the the Nephilim view and going in a completely different direction now. And this view is that the command was not so much to destroy the Canaanite nations as it was to drive them out. And so this view teaches that God was more concerned with expulsion than actual extermination. So when you hear that view, specifically, Grant, what comes to your mind? Do you believe that that's something that is, is... got any merit to it? Is that is, is this maybe not so much God commanding them to kill these nations, but just drive them out? What are your thoughts on that? So we do occasionally see some of this language in the Hebrew Bible, specifically with this root garash, uh, which can mean to drive out. It's something that you see in the Garden of Eden narrative. What happens with the man and the woman? You know, Yahweh, God drives them out. Um and and so yeah, to be sure, it's it's present in some of the the texts of Pentateuch, uh, and if memory serves, I could check on it real quick, but I think it's in Joshua as well. Um, that uh, it you'll 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 find it, but it's not it's not really used all that often. Um, yeah, let me check here real quick because I'm. I'm rather curious just to see instances. Oh, wow. Uh, in fact, in Joshua, I'm only seeing, I just uh, did uh, a search on that particular route using some Bible software. Uh, and I only see two instances of it in Joshua, uh, which is kind of telling, you know. Um, and both of them are in chapter... 24, it seems. Uh, the one is in verse 12. I sent before you uh, the hornet or wasp, if you like, uh, and it drove them out before you, uh, the two kings of the Amorites. Okay. Um, and then further down, verse 18 of Joshua 24, uh, then Yahweh drove out all of the peoples uh, and the Amorites who were inhabitants of the land before us. Dot, dot, dot. Okay, so, you know, there was that language, but it really is rare. What you find more frequently is this language of um, striking down, um, hikkah in Hebrew, 
and that one is violent in nature. There's no getting around it. <laughs> you, you are <laughs> striking out violently, uh, forcefully with the intent to kill. And yeah. uh, you'll find uh, that showing up more frequently in the Joshua text, as well as uh, variants on this key term. Uh, I, I figured we'd have to talk about this at one point or another. Uh, the Hebrew word cherem, uh, which um, is complicated in nature. That's the noun I've just given you. It also has, it, it's connected to a verbal root as well. And you'll see occurrences of the verb um, uh, as well. But cherem as a noun is this abstract concept of what one utterly devotes to a god. Hmm. Uh, now I say a god because we see signs of this language used in other ancient Near Eastern texts, not just in the Bible. Uh, and we, we see it, I'll give you an example here in a moment, but um, one famous example comes from the, uh, the Misha stele, uh, or also known as the Moabite stone. Misha, we know from the Bible. He's this Moabite king uh, who is famous enough to get in our text as well. Uh, but uh, from his own records, he has this monumental inscription where he talks about doing this same act of utterly devoting to his gods uh, the, the Israelite inhabitants of certain regions. And so he's doing to Israel what Israel is described in Joshua as doing to other peoples. And it doesn't feel so good when others are doing it to us, right? <laughs> um, but that's a reminder. Yeah, you know, what goes around comes around. Um, and that Moabites, no less than Israelites, thought, I'm doing the will of God here. I am going to give something up entirely to my God. Now, that can take different forms, and I do want to impress upon, upon uh, your listeners that Cherem, uh was not always violent in nature. Um, so it, it's a core religious and cultural concept in the ancient Near East, uh, but Cherem was what you were going to devote in its entirety, to your God. Uh, and so let's say that you're talking about some kind of material good, like precious metals, gems, uh, textiles, uh, whether they be things that you plundered in war or uh, that you bought or inherited somehow. But you say, you know, I could benefit from this, but I'm going to give it over to my God uh, for the treasury in the sanctuary. Then once you have made that decision and pronounced it harem, uh, then it it belongs to your God and you cannot derive any more benefit off of it. Uh, it is solely for your God's use. Um, to, an, to, an example, if you want to know about this, is uh, Leviticus 27. Um, so that's, that's an example in the Bible where it talks about uh, somebody devoting his field to Yahweh. Uh, and... It's not maybe the most riveting text to follow because it's not it's not narrative driven. It's kind of legalese. But but uh, look for it and you'll notice this language of somebody devoting his field to the Lord. And you can see for yourselves how, yeah, he doesn't get to buy that back. There's no resale. None of that. It is the Lord's now uh, and it cannot be redeemed, you know, so can't be repurchased. Uh, so that's what happens with material goods of harem is when they're devoted, uh, they all go to God. Now, when it comes to human or animal lives that become harem, dedicated ritually to a God, then uh, typically what that seems to have been was uh, 
the, yeah. the killing yeah of these and not even killing in on an altar not in that kind of form which could happen of course with sacrificial animals uh but just a, a slaughter right there on the spot uh and that was one's act of devotion to to a god um and so you you hear this kind of harem language come up in context of war but not exclusively in war. So those context clues would be what would drive the meaning of that word. We're, we're not talking about just giving something over. And I, I had two questions about this and I know I'm not going to say the word right, but harem that's, that's okay. Cause nice, that's yeah. really, that's hard for me to do. Um, <laughs> I tell my students to embrace the Klingon, you know, and just embrace your inner Klingon. Yes. Harem, yeah. Oh yeah. You speak my language now, baby. <laughs> Cause I, I'm a huge nerd, man. I love that stuff. But anyway, I had two questions. Is that in, in, this is something that needs context in order to tell you if this is a wartime thing or if it's something that's more peaceful in nature. So could this be something, number one, could this be um, kind of this, this same concept is in view whenever Samuel is given to Eli, the priest, whenever Samuel's mother, you know, she wants a son so badly. She wants a son so badly. She wants a son so badly. And is this the same kind of thing in mind whenever she gives her son over to Eli? Good question. Um, so the term does not come up there. Uh, and I think you'll see uh, the term Nadar, which means to vow. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm seeing at least in First Samuel 1 Samuel 1.11, she made a vow, neder. Uh, now, I mean, there's going to be some overlap of meaning there. So I, I do want to be clear about that, that um, a vow that a worshiper might make to his or her God um, uh, would also be a binding dedication of someone or something. Yeah. Um, now, in many cases, what you might vow to your God could simply be a free will, you know, a peace offering, it's sometimes called where you would enjoy a portion of it. So that would be one major distinction. Whereas uh, harem, if you if you make a vow <laughs> to that is particularly a harem vow, then it's uh, all of it. Then it's all of it. Yeah, you don't get okay. any of that. It's it comes close, uh, at least in, in some respects, to the Ola, the whole burnt offering, uh, where you know the, the way that it's typically portrayed is that yeah, the whole thing goes up to to Yahweh. So an, another follow up, real fast. Mm -hmm. Whenever Jesus was decrying the the religious leaders of his day for not honoring their father and mother because they said something was Corbin. Uh -huh. Is this that similar concept or is it more like that Nadar concept with Samuel? So that's different. Cor Korban is uh, just a general Hebrew term for offering. Okay. Um, it comes from this root meaning uh, to draw near. So it's what you bring near to God. Um, Korban could include under its very large umbrella, everything from uh, a neder, you know, a general vow, which were typically sacrifice offerings in many cases. Uh, and it could include cherem, a very extreme kind of uh, offering, uh, and down to lighter, uh, uh, happy occasion offerings like like the shalamim, the peace offering or the, 
the free okay. will offering. Okay, so it's just a very, very generic term then. And I, I didn't want to go too far afield then. But yeah, this, right. we, this, we could get lost in that terminology. Oh, absolutely. But well, those and, are the things that came to mind for me. Anyway, yeah. sorry, Kevin, go ahead. Well, no, no. So, so kind of kind of to bring it back to their the original point. So with, with this argument of those who try to, once again, I'm going to use the word soften mm-hmm. these texts, they'll say, well, then this isn't really about destroying. This isn't about killing. God, God didn't want the Jews to do that. He just wanted them to, to drive out the people of the land. Um, that really is not truly fair to the context, right? I mean, is that what you're saying when you look at how the different words are used? That that's that's kind of a overstating yeah. the case, uh, maybe a little bit of special pleading. Yeah, um, that's a good way to put it. Um, I I think it it is trying to soften. In fact, I think even among these Israelite writers who will occasionally use that term. Uh, though though not consistently, it's probably in those moments where they're not feeling entirely great about it either. Um, let's let's call it chasing them off, uh, rather than oh I don't know splitting their throats and you know burning their corpses, uh, letting rivers of blood just, flow down yeah. the plains. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's I mean let's not like clean it up. That's what yeah, we're talking well, about. Well, uh, he was let go. He was released. He, was like, oh, yeah, yeah. he wasn't fired. Um, well, and I think it's just basic passages like Deuteronomy 20, because when I when I came across mm-hmm. this view that we're discussing right now, that's saying, well, this God's not actually commanding the Jews to, you know, that the Jews didn't understand God to be commanding them to destroy or kill these Canaanite nations. Instead, he was just wanting to drive them out. When I was reading this view, studying this view, at first I thought, hey, there, there may be some merit to it. Because it sounds good, and that would be great, because to me that would explain a lot of things, and I could go on saying, hey, no, 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 God didn't want anybody destroyed. He was just wanting people to to, to leave the land God had promised the Jews, and that's all really what's going on here. And that sounds great, but even when you just do a typical contextual study without getting into all the different Hebrew words, just look at Deuteronomy 20, verse 16 here. It says, when you go into the lands that God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Mm-hmm. Completely destroy them. And then he goes and he, and he talks about those Canaanite nations. Mm-hmm. Completely destroy them. And the reason given here, too, in verse 18, is otherwise they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, mm-hmm. and you will sin against the Lord your God. Now, I think this is interesting because we have the reason, one of, or one of the reasons given here is basically they're going to be a bad influence. So mm-hmm. the reason why you have to kill everything that breathes, I mean, that's pretty straightforward language, mm-hmm. and destroy, and you know, the reason, because we, I don't want you to be influenced by their sinful practices. And what I find ironic about this is when you look at the Jews themselves, the Jews they they knew how to sin too and it, it this really I, I really have a problem with this explanation that is given in Deuteronomy and I and I say that and people may scoff at that and go well, how can you have a problem with this explanation well <laughs> we're going to talk about some of that multi vocal nature here in a minute but one of the reasons is that there's no problem from my or there's no reason um at least you what I know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but contextually or historically, that the Canaanites were worse than any other sinners. I mean, even Israel participated in things like child sacrifice, and they participated in every single sin 
that these Canaanite nations participated in. Sometimes people will bring up child sacrifices like the ultimate, but the Jews participated in child sacrifice. And so at times, I mean, they shouldn't have, but they did. Mm -hmm. And so even though if we were to assume that, yes, the Canaanites were at this point worst sinners, which as I said, I don't think they were based upon the context, because how can you even begin to determine who's, who's a worse sinner. But even if that's the case, Paul seems to level that out in Romans when he's saying, hey, Jew, Gentile, everybody, we're all equally wrong. We've all equally sinned. Mm-hmm. And James 2.10, to break one law is to break them all. So this just this whole idea of the reason why it seems God is wanting the Jews to destroy the Canaanites, to, to stamp out evil, to make sure that they're not a bad influence— this seems to be a very elementary and immature reason because you know number one if, if that's your goal well you can't you can't kill wickedness right I mean mm-hmm. if if in the floods if the flood story taught us anything <laughs> it mm-hmm. doesn't take very long <laughs> to just get right back into sinning again and yeah. so the fact that this seems to be given the reason that seems to be a very I don't want to say ungodly, but it seems to be a very naive God to say, oh, I've got an idea. These are bad people. Mm -hmm. Go and kill them, and that'll take care of the situation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, and that that works when we are children. Those are the kind of narratives that we we are attracted to in our, our younger years, at least. Uh, I mean, my, my own boys right now, they, they love all the superhero stuff and, you know, the explodier, the better. Um, (laughs) and, and I love that in them. I think, I think that's great for their age, but at the same time, I, as their father, I hope, uh, better things as they mature, uh, you know, some, some subtler messages of heroism, uh, as well as recognizing that my own worst enemy might be myself. Uh, you know, that uh, I am capable of, of great depths of evil, mm-hmm. uh, and we all are. Um, and when you start to realize that, then the old stories that we tell ourselves, uh, you know, good guys over here, bad guys over there, you know, here, here's the Fellowship of the Ring, and there are the orcs on that side. And, and you know, surely they don't kiss their babies. Do they even have babies? Oh, let's not imagine that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> the moment you start imagining that, again, you're forced to uh, see their faces, um, uh, to <laughs> to humanize orcs. Uh, and no, they yeah. have Satan blood. Get them, yeah. get them. <laughs> <Get 'em. laughs> and, and you see it in wartime propaganda. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you see it... Uh, honestly, on both sides, yeah. uh, with, you know, uh, how were Nazis portraying Jews, uh, and Polish people and, and, uh, any number of these groups that they were hounding, uh, well, they made them look less than human. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we were doing it too. Um, now that's not to justify, uh, the, the wholesale, uh, campaign, uh, to exterminate Jews and, and other groups that the Nazis had. But we also want to recognize that, uh, we were doing a, a version of that. I say we, you know, U S government and other yeah. powers, you know, when you're rallying your troops and that's just an example from one war, it, you know, survey, uh, the publications from other wars and you'll see much the same thing. Uh, you want them to look, uh, like you know, wicked, monstrous, cradle-robbing uh, <laughs> demons that are under your bed and, and go forth and kill. 
Well, and that to me is one of the reasons why contextually the Nephilim view of this, that that is the perspective the Israelites had, that these were, you know, God, demon, you know, or demon man hybrids or however you want to put it. That makes sense to me because it's the same thing that we do even now. Yeah. You know, Grant, just like you said with, with the Jews, I mean, to me, it's, and there are some people that believe that that is a representation of reality, that the divine council is, is, and was a thing. And that that's something that literally took place and literally happened. And whether it is, or whether it isn't, you still have a otherization. You still have a less than human, you know, narrative or designation being assigned to these people yeah. so that Israel could go in and kill them and obliterate them off the face of the earth with a cleaner conscience. Oh yeah. It's, it's well, a tale as old as time. Yes, please. Um, you know, I, was, I was mentioning that Misha Steely a moment ago and I, I pulled it up before um, I got online with you guys uh, just cause I thought we'd probably need to use this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very important to hear this from the other side. So here's, um, this is from the Misha Stele, 9th century um, uh, BC document coming from King Misha of Moab uh, about his perspective on things. And so this starts just a few lines down in the text. Uh, he prefaces it by talking about how um, earlier in, in his history and the history of his father, they had been oppressed by the Israelites who had the upper hand. He even names Omri. Uh, oh, wow. Name. Yeah, so it's it's a fascinating study of a lot of key personages from the Bible, um, but now finding them in another ancient document. Um, and But he talks about how this itself, the fact that Moab was oppressed, uh, was viewed as punishment from his god, Chemosh. Even that should ring a bell, right? Uh, yeah. Just think of the judges' narratives, you know, and when, when Israel is oppressed, well, you know, that's because... Yahweh is allowing this foreign army to uh, to hound them. Uh, and so what do you know? The Moabites were telling themselves the same kind of story. Uh, when when Israelites had us under their thumb, well, that's because we had angered Chemosh. Uh, but then, uh, so like I said, uh, I think it's about line six. Uh, he says, Chemosh said to me, so Chemosh would be his God, the name of his God, just like Israelites, the name of their God was Yahweh. Chemosh said to me, go seize Nebo, and that's the same Nebo that we know from the Bible. Go seize Nebo in opposition to Israel. So I marched throughout the night and fought against it from the break of dawn until midday, and I seized it. I slew all of them, 7,000 men, boys, women, girls, and pregnant women. In fact, uh, in, in the original language, he uses there um, that term I've translated pregnant women is really wombs, literally. Um so he's he's very clear <laughs> about slaughtering all of, of these people, um, uh, you know, both genders and young and old and, and even not pitying pregnant women. Um, but he goes on to say, indeed, I devoted it, meaning, you know, devoted that city, Nibo, uh, to Ashtar Kemosh, uh, an alternate uh, and a composite sort of God name for Kemosh and the goddess Ashtar. Uh, I devoted it, and, and that word for devoted is cherem there, it's that root. I devoted it to Ashtar Kimosh, and I took from there the vessels of Yahweh and dragged them before Kimosh. So in other words, what's happening in that text is he, he's explaining from a Moabite theology, here's why we were losing for so long, 
we, we had somehow angered Chemosh, but we started to rectify that. And then Chemosh, our God, said to me, go forth and attack and, and essentially you know, reclaim these territories that the Moabites felt were rightfully theirs and Israelites felt that were rightfully theirs. And But again, this is a Moabite stand. So he's saying, yeah, Chemosh says, go take it. And so I did that thing and I wiped them all out. And that was my act of harem, devoting all of these lives, 7,000, he says. You know, that might be exaggeration, but easily <laughs> it could be a few hundred, you know. Um, and just slaughtering them, not sparing any. And then taking the vessels, any kind of precious materials that are not living things, and those, you know, and, and these are vessels of Yahweh, you know, dedicated to Yahweh. He takes those and puts them in the temple of his gods. Well, it's so interesting to me. And whenever you say that, it's the exact same story. Yeah. It, it's 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 the exact same story, but some of the names have been protect mm-hmm. changed to protect the not so innocent, mm-hmm. and it's and it's things like that when when taken in view in conjunction with the Nephilim view that contextually it makes sense to me this explanation and and this will kind of get into the next phase of what we were going to talk about this idea that the genocides did happen but they weren't from God. Mm-hmm. That the people that perpetrated them, the Israelites or even the Moabites in in this in this case, they believe that that's what they were supposed to do because of their cultural context, but they attributed them to God and His command. That's one of the views that that does make a lot of sense to me. Um, it's it, that raises some other questions though, and and it gets into some other issues. And then of course, there's another view that we may get into now or mention now, and then maybe dig into it later. Kevin, do you have a preference on that? Well, no, I just wanted to to backtrack just for a moment because one of the accusations that actually I've I've heard and I used to to say myself and use against those who were trying to teach these alternative views to the genocide. I said, well, this is all new. You know, we, we now are just a soft culture and to, you know, to, to these Jews, they wouldn't have had any problem with this. This is just who God was, but now we're this post enlightened postmodern culture. And we, this just doesn't really set well with our sensibilities. So we're having to try to rewrite the Bible, but that's Bunch not of bleeding true. Heart liberals. <laughs> of bleeding hearts. It's like, yeah, you know, you can't, you can't stand war. You're not tough. You just, but no, that's actually not true though. And I just wanted to make this point because we're not gonna we're not gonna talk about this very long, but I do just want to bring this up because when you look at the earliest Christians, the what what are called the early church fathers, uh, we read a, at least two individuals who specifically talked about this. So, uh, so Marcion, some have pronounced as a Martian. They he re, he rejected the Old Testament and several letters in the New Testament because he had, there's a lot of pre or perceived problems that uh, that he he alluded to, but he believed that the teachings of Jesus were incompatible with the picture of a violent God found in the Old Testament. And of course, this would go hand in hand with these specific texts that we're talking about. But he wasn't the only one because a lot of people look at him and, yeah, okay, but he was a heretic. No other Christians really took him seriously. Um, And by the way, at that time, anybody just like today could call anybody a heretic. So that doesn't really matter much. Just if I can call you a false teacher, you call me a false teacher. Doesn't mean either one's true. Uh, but even then, he wasn't the only one. Origen also believed that a lot of these Old Testament 
passages, specifically these, what we are calling these war passages or genocide passages, that they should have been understood and should be understood as only spiritual and figurative, that they should be interpreted allegorically and not literally. And if you're interested, you can email me and I can send you this link. But um, he actually makes the argument from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul's giving a lot of Israel's history, and there's just a lot, a lot of figurative spiritualization, allegory going on there, where he's talking about how they were baptized, and uh, Jesus was the rock, and all these different types of things. So he, I'm not going to go into all the arguments that he goes into, but the point I'm making is that this is not new. This isn't some sort of postmodern um, argument or postmodern issue that we're just now addressing. And Christians, all you know, up until just the past little while, have been perfectly fine with accepting these genocide texts. Well, I was. I mean, anyway. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, I was a faithful <laughs> Christian, so yeah. No, but you know, this is something that Christians have always wrestled with, especially when comparing these texts with who Jesus is and the stories of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. So this is nothing new. I just wanted to point that out very quickly and just let the audience know that this is this is an ongoing discussion. It, it absolutely is, and it's been an ongoing discussion for 2,000 years plus at this point. And, yeah. you know, whenever we, we bring it back around to this idea that the genocides happened, but God didn't actually ordain them. We see some of that multivocality coming back out in Scripture. We see the human side of Scripture manifesting itself. And I think that this is the position that Kent Sparks, a scholar that we've referenced on this program multiple times, I'm fairly sure that this is the perspective he takes. Um, even then, though, he may take this other view as well. The the issue, though, that arises when we start to say that the genocides did happen, but they did not come from God, that they were not what God commanded. This was just Israel in their cultural time, a cultural place, doing what all of the other cultures did to justify their actions. It, it raises some really, really harrowing questions, one of which is, is well, if we look at all of the scripture as God breathed and we look at all of it as God inspired, does this mean that we can't take the Bible at its word when it says that God did or God said something? Well, then if that's the case, can we just, you know, take anything else that the Bible says that God Picking said and, and just throw it out? Yeah. Can we then cherry pick what actually came from God and what doesn't just because it makes us uncomfortable or just because it goes against our perception of what the nature of God is? I mean, it, it makes it a free-for-all. It, it makes the Bible actually mean nothing. And I think that's a fair criticism to make against that position that the genocides did happen, but they were not from God. And Grant, I, I wonder if that is a position that you have heard, what your thoughts are on it, what's your insight on that? Yeah, and, and I can say once again that this is something I have felt from the inside. Uh, um, when I first started to see these things in the text, uh, and, and on many occasions, it wasn't something that I was even necessarily hearing from any of my professors when I was going through my graduate studies, uh, but taking the tools that, that I was given to, to study the Hebrew and to read other ancient Near Eastern documents, uh, and, and then just scrutinizing them for myself, paying close attention which my tradition taught me to do growing up, you know, read, read your Bible, know it inside and out. Yes. Uh, and, and it was that process which started to even show me, uh, oh my goodness, I don't think this lines up. And, and uh, so I get uh, how jarring that is if, if you're considering that for the first time 
uh, it feels like the floor is dropping out from beneath you. What do I stand on now? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what, what I would try to assure people of, and I, I mean, I try to do this with my students who might be uh, reaching these existential crises of their own when, when they start to see things in the text and they're wondering, what do I even do with that? Um, uh, I first encourage them to stop and breathe <laughs> and take their pulse uh, and then say, okay, so let's, let's deal with each of these pieces in turn. What have you noticed? All right. What, what do you feel pretty confident about? You know, like, what do you see that you can't, you're not going to unsee like that's, that's solidly there. And as a, as a, a scholar of, of the texts, um, that's the, one of the biggest things for me is, Hey, what does the text actually say? Not, not what you want it to say. Um, and so, you know, Kevin, you gave that great example a moment ago of chasing out, uh, I've noticed, you know, listening attentively in many of our church settings today, I hear many of my fellow Christians using more of that language. You know, God chased out the Canaanites. Well, not so much chased out. Did he though? These, these Did texts, he yeah. <laughs> no, it, these texts uh, say your children. You know, it's. Like... <laughs> he said, "Wipe them out, including the kids. You know, including the toddlers, the children. Get out of here, Canaanites." <laughs> <laughs> Even that, I mean, for for us living in Oklahoma, uh, that should not escape our attention. Yeah. Knowing, no, knowing the effects of forced migration on Native American populations and the horrors in our own nation's history. Uh, so we can't even excuse that. Um, but all of that to say, um, I, I just I try to to um, encourage others, uh, other Christians going through this to stop and say, OK, now it may be hard, but do you want to know the truth? Are you sincere in wanting to know truth? And if you are, and this happens even outside of a specifically Christian conversation, but sometimes if you're an honest seeker of truth, some truth that comes your way is going to uh, crack a little chink in, in a foundation stone of your worldview. You know, you thought that you were sitting on something pretty solid, and now you think, oh, with this new information that's come my way, uh, I've got to shuffle some things around. I don't think it's exactly like what I used to think. Um, but at the same time, I reassure them, you know, your pursuit of the divine of God is is a worthy pursuit. And, uh, and don't give up on that. And if anything, out of this process, I can say that more easily now. It, it's yeah. terrifying when you start the process. But... Um, I can say from this side of things, even though I have many more questions, uh, I've come to a position of a greater uh, sense of peace uh, about, about the God whom I serve and this ability to, to start discerning uh, that God's voice. Um, because it, it's very easy. We've used this language, you know, to say, well, God's ways are mysterious, right? Who am I to question uh, but the point is, we all do question it at some level. That is to say, you know, you're raised in a, a certain religious tradition. And in our world that we're, wherein we are exposed to alternative religions, uh, then you at least at some point in your maturity are faced with the question, okay, do I still want to stick it out in this religion in which I was raised, if that's the case for you? Uh and, and to the degree that Christians still believe in uh, the, the importance of sharing the gospel with the hope that 
will win over people's hearts, that they they will see the goodness of Christ and his love for them, uh, then we must understand that that very idea presumes that there is something God-given in them that can hear the voice of God, even if they weren't raised to think, now this text is the voice of God, but they hear it and there's going to be something that clicks, mysterious, you know, God's movements, but something to tell them, yeah, that's, I think that's really a God thing. I think that's God speaking through that. Um, because otherwise, it, we just fall back on, well, you're going to, you are bound to believe whatever you were raised with. And, and so I, I tell my students as, as a matter of example, well, imagine that you were raised uh, in the Ammonite context uh, to serve Molech. And <laughs> Molech demands <laughs> that you sacrifice your children and to say, you know, eyes glazed over. Well, the ways of Molech are mysterious to me. <laughs> Here it goes. And, you know, I mean, because that's really how that kind of logic plays out. If, if yeah. it to its fullest, then that's what you end up doing. And the same thing as we've been talking about so far in this podcast. Um, if you start justifying a, a, an example of genocide, a, a mass killing on the grounds that, well, God knew what he was doing somehow. And and these texts do say, after all, that uh, those people were evil. So, yeah, I guess they should be slaughtered. Then, you know, how much more is it going to take to for us eventually mm-hmm. to be spilling the blood of other groups of people and telling ourselves the same story over again? Well, Gr- Grant, on what textual basis, if any, can it be argued that the Jews did participate in these genocides and that they did believe that they were commanded by God, or at least they felt like that they were justified and that this is something that God wanted them to do, mm-hmm. but it really wasn't what God wanted them to do. I, I, I understand the argument of, okay, well, emotionally, this just doesn't seem like it would be right. But just to give a little pushback, is there any textual reason that, so aside from just kind of the compassionate understanding of, yeah. of, of what's inside of us and even comparing it with Jesus, which I guess that could be a textual argument because you're looking at Jesus and comparing these with what Jesus taught, but is there anything immediately that you could appeal to or that one could go to and say, well, here's why this may not it, it this may have not actually been from god or this wasn't actually from god this was just their misunderstanding of what god wanted them to do mm-hmm. well so the best place to start here is is finding that context for these stories and and we begin by we we might want to parse out our language and say that we're not really dealing with jews when we're talking about this part of the story of israel um uh, those in my field, we, we refer to this uh, group as Israelites. Mm. Um, and, and then later on, when you got that division of the kingdom, you know, we talk about Israelites and Judahites. Judah, yeah. um, and from Judah comes eventually that name Jew. Uh, but Jew as this singular, you know, socio-religious um, identity, you know, that is to say it's, it's bound up with the ethnicity of what it is to, you know, come from this family, descended mm-hmm. from Israel. Um, and at the same time that your your genes uh, are also going to play out in terms of the culture of your religion, you know, what you inherited, specifically a monotheistic religion. And by the time that you get to that as, as a, a larger phenomenon for Jewish people, you're talking about Second Temple period uh, after Babylonian exile. Um, when you, that really starts to congeal, that starts to form. Uh, whereas ancient 
Israelite lifestyle, um, though it, it had its own um, particulars, it also looked uh, very similar in many ways to what other ancient Eastern groups were doing. Like like we saw a moment ago, you know, in that Moabite stone. Uh, it's oh, the same man. story, just different names. Yeah, and, and in fact, the language in which that's written is very similar to the Hebrew um, that you find in the in the Hebrew Bible. Um, so, yeah, it sounds identical even just to Deuteronomy 20. Yeah, yeah. To what, what we read earlier. That's right, yeah. Um, and so all that to say, yeah, so we want to understand that even uh, even Jews as an entity, as a people, change over time, you know, from, from their ancestral roots as Israel, the Israelites, into this people group who have lost majorly. <laughs> um, you know, they used to be on top of their sector of the world. Uh, you know, you hear those, the accounts of David and Solomon just exercising great power over uh, other kingdoms around them. And, and that's that glory story that we like to tell ourselves, right? When we're kids, you know, we're the good guys. You play the bad guys this time. And, you know, none of our friends ever wanted to play the bad guys. No, you play the bad guys. Um, but that's this story that every group tells itself in its infancy. You know, we're the good guys. Of course, everybody else is the bad guys. And so go smash them. We know what to do with them. Uh, and that works for a while. But then as time goes on, it's not always quite so simple as that. Um, and and you find out, you know, sometimes, oh, I, you know, I think we might have been the bad guys this time around. And when that when that happens, this, your, the stories you tell yourselves have to get more complex. So one major shift, and this is not even specifically in Joshua, but just um, in the Hebrew Bible as a whole, as it's coming together, um, and the shift takes place largely because of Babylonian exile. Some of the old stories that Israelites told themselves could not work anymore. Uh, you know, we're the good guys. Yahweh, our God, always fights our battles and wins for us. Uh, clearly that didn't happen. <laughs> Babylonians yeah. and their gods seem to have won. Uh, and I, I'm saying that from an ancient Near Eastern perspective. You know, when they, when they uh, took them into captivity, and, wow, I guess Marduk is really strong. And these, these Babylonians are the victors this time. Um, I thought for sure Yahweh was going to win that battle for us. And so, and you see some of those reflections in their writings. Like Psalm 74 is a great example uh, where the psalmist uh, is, you can see his mental process, his gears turning in his head while he's trying to come to grips with, wait, Yahweh, you're my God from of old. You know, you're that God from antiquity who... Uh, didn't you crush the heads of Leviathan? That's a mythic battle, by the way, right? The heads, plural, of Leviathan. Um, that's the classic image of, I mean, their version of the one of the Avengers movies, you know? <laughs> monstrous, uh, you know, demon-like thing comes out of the waters of chaos. Uh, that's their version of the depths of space. And <laughs> tries to get the gauntlet of power <laughs> and destroy everything. And our heroic God steps up and says, yeah, no, and, and beats them back. Uh, and it, it, that still sells. That's blockbuster stuff, you know? Um, but it, it only sells until it doesn't, until you, you get a little older. Sometimes it takes, in fact, enough losses in life, suffering, sad to say. Um, or in other cases, happily, it, it's... Um, getting older and becoming a dad, becoming a mom, you know, uh, being softened by 
those tender compassions and starting to realize, yeah, there's more to life than just the beat em up stories. Um, and so I, I think, you know, for those people who were becoming uh, uh, much more like like that, that group we think of as Jews today, um, they were in this major transition because of exile to start recognizing, yeah, that story doesn't always work. And you see that even in the first creation accounts, Genesis 1 and 2, which I think we talked about last time. Uh, but we, we can so easily miss that those are late stories, um, later than some of the ones that you see versions of in Psalm 74. It, it suggests that you know an earlier creation story they had was our God beats up chaos monster Leviathan and then creates order. Then creation happens. Um, and so, you know, that's taking a very big um, perspective on things. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I was just going to say, you know, and and you had brought this up earlier, I believe. I don't know if we started recording yet or not when we had alluded to this, Mm. but there is this multi-vocal nature of the Bible, which that's what we talked about the whole episode last time we had you on. Mm. But I think you even see that with these uh, the, the ideas of these these conquests and what's going on here because you have the Gibeonites, for example, mm-hmm. who were supposed to be destroyed, and yet we see in Joshua they were deceived into making a covenant with them because they're like, oh no no, we're just weary travelers, and you please make a covenant with us, and we'll we'll work we'll we'll work for you, and and uh, you know. The story says that Joshua was supposed to consult with God. He didn't, so he goes ahead and he makes this covenant with him, even though he shouldn't have. He's supposed to destroy him. You're not supposed to be making covenants with these kind of people, according to those texts. And he does make this covenant. Come to find out they were part of the Canaanite nations. They should have been destroyed. But now they're in covenant with them, so what happens? Well, they're supposed to keep this covenant. And we even see that going all the way hundreds of years into the future with uh, with King Saul, when, or uh, yeah, with King Saul, where he doesn't provide, and when there's a famine in the land, and then God sends a famine on the land for them because God, Saul's not keeping this covenant that was made years and years before. And you're like, well, wait a minute. I thought that these were people we were supposed to destroy, not make a covenant with. And even though Joshua made this covenant, certainly that should have been voided because he didn't even know he was making a covenant with the Canaanites. He thought it was this, this group of poor, weary travelers. So that's that seems interesting. But then also you get into Rahab as well. I believe you brought, uh, brought Rahab up earlier. And so there just seems to be a lot of these inconsistencies and I won't even say inconsistencies per se, because especially if it's written by, by different authors, it's just tensions, right? I mean, we can call yeah, them contradictions yeah. or tensions. But it, it, and then what has always surprised me, and I was going to see or shocked me or concerned me or caused me grief, whatever word you want to use, when I'm studying these texts, is that you have all these clear commands to go into these specific nations that are Canaanites and destroy, destroy, destroy. Hmm. But then it gives laws on how to treat them. Once you've moved into the land, it's like, wait a minute. Like, I thought you were supposed to destroy them. Why Why now are there laws about how to make covenants with them when just not too long ago you were told not to make covenants with them? And now you're being told this is how to make a covenant? So can you kind of unpack a little bit of that for us and what's going on there? What do you think could be going on with that, with those different texts? Because yeah. it's, it's not clear cut, right? I mean, this is when you put all these texts mm-hmm. together, it's not this this clear picture really doesn't emerge. Yeah. But it, this is what happens when, when you are a careful student of the text, you know, when you're really paying attention. Uh, and, and so, yeah, you're bringing it back down to a much more manageable, small-scale level. 
when we're talking about even things that you can see in Joshua as a book alone. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you have the general uh, goal of the text um, being pretty clear, you know, go in, wipe out all the Canaanites, even wipe out is cleaning up language, isn't it? You know, but destroy the Canaanites. Um, and then by the end of it all, Joshua essentially says, you know what? Yeah, mission accomplished. We did that, didn't we? Um, and so that's, that is sold as the thing to do. Israel needs to destroy all these peoples. Um, but then, yeah, you get those little vignettes. You get those little stories within the greater story, like Rahab the prostitute. And it, it just kills me. You know, the, the author there more than once refers to her as Rahab the prostitute. Um, as, as if to, you know, remind us, not only is she Canaanite, not only is she one of these local <laughs> peoples that you're supposed to kill outright, but she's a prostitute. And the law also said about prostitutes that you're supposed to kill them. Uh, and so she's got two strikes against her. Uh, and what do they do? Oh, man, they make a covenant with her. <laughs> Maybe they cancel each other out because she was a Canaanite <laughs> and a harlot. Double negative becomes a positive. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and and of course, you, I'm coining that one right here on this podcast. Yeah. I'm gonna write a whole book about it. That's right. Adult readers of the text also, <laughs> um, you know, let let's come on, let's let's be realistic here. You know, you're talking about two male spies who go into the city, and the only place they find uh, to lodge is with a prostitute. Oh, okay. All right. There's some chicanery <laughs> afoot there. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think. This is one of those texts. I, I think honestly, sometimes these biblical authors are being funny, and we're not—we're missing the joke. And you know, and across yeah. the pages of time, you know, they're—they're they're hitting their mics. Is this thing on? <laughs> 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 I, mean, that, I, mean, I mean, that killed in Gilgal. You know, they loved it. <laughs> you guys aren't getting it, yeah. <laughs> well, and, so, and it, yeah. It, it, it well, and it makes it makes sense to me that things are. <laughs> Change. Oh man. <laughs> Heaven gets it, yeah. <laughs> well, it, yeah. it makes sense to me that as things change and as times change and as your nation's story changes, I mean, yeah. look at America as sort of a parallel to what you just went through with with Israel and how their culture changed as their nation changed. Mm-hmm. You know, you have this massive, you have a United Kingdom under Saul, under David, under Solomon, and then you have the Civil War. You have the division of the kingdom then into the 10 northern tribes and then the two southern tribes, you know, Israel and Judah, collectively speaking. And then you have the exile that takes place and the narrative changes. The stories they tell change. The stories that they tell are reimagined in terms of, you know, Samuel Kings and Chronicles, for example. You have all of these things happen and all of these things take place. We see the same thing with America. You see this monolithic, you know, nation rise up and then you have a civil war and then you have division that takes place. And if you look at the civil war, Mm -hmm. Um, And even now in some areas, and Kevin may be able to speak to this, you know, more effectively since he lived, you know, is from a state that was actually a state when the Civil War was fought. You know, Oklahoma wasn't a state until 1907. But in in any case, if you look at the Civil War, I graduated high school, man. So no, I'm not going to be able to give you much there. (laughs) Oh, come on now. (laughs) Anyways, but if you look at it at the way the story of the civil war is told from, you know, a, a more standard narrative, you have, you know, the, the Southern States wanting to hold on to slavery. You have the Northern States that wanted to abolish it. And that's what the war was fought over. But if you look at it from the perspective of, you know, 
I, I, I don't want to use this term. It may be too strong, but I'm going to use it anyway because I can't think of a one that's more accurate. But in terms of Confederate sympathizers, mm-hmm. it was an, a, an act of Northern aggression because the Southern states weren't allowed to engage in the economic freedom afforded to them by the Constitution, and that's why they seceded. So you get a, a telling and a retelling of the story based on circumstances, based on who's telling the story, and is in, in terms of how that works related to the genocides – you know, these genocides happen, but they weren't from God. It makes sense that that might be the case in terms of what Israel was looking at. You know, mm-hmm. they had these things that they did. It was what they did in their culture, in their day, in their time. You know, whether it came from God or not, it, 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 this is one of the things that, that Kevin was kind of getting to. You know, what are some of those textual markers that exist within the text itself that point to the idea that maybe the genocides did happen, but they weren't from God. And Kevin mentioned the, uh, the, the, you know, they made covenants when they weren't supposed to make covenants. They're making these agreements, you know, with, with a prostitute and a Canaanite Mm -hmm. prostitute to boot. Mm -hmm. Um, what that makes a lot of sense to me. Is, is there merit that, that, that maybe that's, that that could be a textual representation that the genocides happened, but they weren't from God or are we reaching a little too far there to make that assertion? Well, so, you know, one of the tricks here, or at least let's say it's, it's one of the difficulties with this kind of a text. Um, I mean, for one thing, we have a stake in it uh, because this is, this is the text that has informed our theology. We've grown up with this and, and um, there's an apologetics layer. Too. Yeah. There's an apologetics leaning. Yeah. Um, but then you add to what is already complicated that, that even for those in my field, for example, in the, in the field of, of biblical studies, um, who don't have a horse in the race, so to speak, you know, if, if they're not particularly religious, but they study it more just out of interest in these ancient peoples, which that's fine, you know, um, uh, then even for them, as well as for myself as a researcher in the field, uh, one of the difficulties, okay, you've got the life of the text as such. You've got, in other words, the, these characters in story form. And they take on a life of their own, regardless of whether or not they are historical entity, you know, historical people. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we ought to know this in our own day and age, too. You know, that we we have any number of uh, non-debatable historical figures. I think I've used this analogy before many places. And if I did it with you guys, I'm sorry. But, you know, I, I take that example of, of Abraham Lincoln. You know, nobody's going to debate. You know, he he lived. He existed. Uh uh, at the same time, you know, uh, there's good reason to believe he never did, Grant. I mean, okay, if you, yeah. you just do your own research, you'll come to that conclusion. <laughs> you'll too. find out. Yeah, these days, who knows? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, uh, <laughs> you throw me off track. That was, that was too good. But <laughs> all that to say, you know, so there's the life of the historical Lincoln, and much of it mundane and boring. You know, I mean, getting up in the morning and eating breakfast. You know, he was not always interesting. I. I mean, I hope, like, goodness, who has the strength? But uh, <laughs> but then there is the mythologized kind of Lincoln. There's the link, the legendary Lincoln that we build up in novels and on, on the movie screens, you know? And, and that's a fun exploratory uh, um, enterprise for us. Just think, what would it have been like to be in the presence of, of somebody like that? Goodness. Um, 
But, you know, the, the Lincoln that lives in that space, even if it is a historical drama, that's a fictive space, mm-hmm. we say. You know, it's, it is, it's fiction, not, not in the sense of, of it being false or a lie, but certain artistic liberties are going to be taken. Mythicized. Mythicized, yeah. yeah. And a lot of the stuff, the mundane daily stuff like Lincoln flossing, you know, that <laughs> stuff gets taken out because that doesn't put butts in seats. You know, that's... yeah. That, that's not going to interest people. It's not pertinent. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, so it is honestly with the biblical text. Uh, it's not to deny historicity, um, but it's to say that whatever kind of history we might be dealing with here, we don't have direct access to it. What we do have access to are these texts that uh, seem to be telling us at least about a few individuals from history. And yet uh, they're being told with the, the writer's purposes in mind as well. So, and the same thing happens with the Gospels. You know, you're you're being told about Jesus, uh, but you're also getting Matthew's spin on Jesus and Luke's, and you know, so it's it's going to be a little different each time. And some of the the author will come out in it as well. Well, I wanted to to bring up one more view, and mm-hmm. then I want to ask some questions for just a quick discussion, okay. um, because hopefully we're giving our audience. Well, I was going to say answers. We're probably just giving them a whole lot more questions, but that's that's part of studying and that's part of being an honest Bible student and just a human being is is let's look at the information in front of us because there's a lot of different understandings to these texts and there's a lot of different perspectives on how we can understand them. But one of the views that somewhat goes hand in hand with what you just said is a view that has been pretty popularized by Pete Inns, which is that he believes that the conquest of Canaan at least described in the Bible, never even took place, that it never even happened. And he uses, first of all, archaeological evidence for this. He says that not only is there no archaeological evidence that events like that ever took place, but at the time the conquest is said to happen in the late Bronze Age, the cities of the region were uh, were, were sparsely populated, so there would have been no way that something like that could have happened. And I just want to give a couple of quotes so that the audience can understand this position, because this this might even come as a bigger shock as the one we just discussed, which is they did happen, but the Israelites had a misunderstanding and that it really wasn't God behind it. They just attributed these actions to God and the motivation as being, we're doing this in order to please our God. This one takes it a step further and say, well, actually, it never even happened to begin with. These genocides, as described in the Bible, never even took place. And I just want to read this, or I'm just going to quote this right here. It says, the ancient Israelites actually didn't go on a killing spree throughout Canaan. Instead, they arrived peaceably over the course of a few generations. The archaeological evidence just doesn't support the tales of the Old Testament the way they're told. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The emergence of early Israel was an outcome of the collapse of the Canaanite culture not its cause. And most of the Israelites did not come from outside of Canaan. They actually emerged from within it. There was no mass exodus from Egypt. There was no violent conquest of Canaan. Most of the people who formed early Israel were local people, the same people whom we see in the highlands throughout the Bronze and Iron Age. Here's the kicker. The early Israelites were, irony of ironies, themselves originally Canaanites. And then uh, Pete goes on to write in his book, The Bible Tells Me So, he said, uh, it seems that as time went on and Israel became a nation, Stories of these earlier uh, of these earlier wars 
grew and turned into exaggerated stories of Israel's real wars against the Canaanites. Um, these stories probably tell us more about Israel's later conflicts and wars with the original population of the land during the time of Israel's kings than what actually happened centuries earlier. So I was going to just ask if you want to give any comment on that and what your thoughts are from that perspective, if there's any merit to to that position or if there this kind of may be a hybrid mm-hmm. of the position we've been talking about. Yeah. So, and this, this comes back to Lee's question as well, that, um, and what we were just talking about that the, the unfortunate thing is the text only tells us so much mm-hmm. and, uh, and it, it's limited by the constraints of how much time the author has and how much space to tell a story and get a few points across. Um, and, and so we, we, to get a, a picture of Israel in its classic setting, we try to draw on as many resources as we can, the Bible being one of them, but remembering the whole time, as I was just saying, that uh, you're also dealing with authors and not, it's not just a lens directly into a day in the life of Israel. Um, so to get, to get more perspective and to get maybe a little closer to a lens on the daily life of Israel, then you, you want to lean on what do the archaeological digs tell us? Uh, and, uh, and that <laughs> they've been revealing in many ways. They can't tell us everything. Uh, I mean, archaeology has its limits, but there are many strengths in that field that we don't want to ignore. Uh, and so one of them is that um, archaeologists learn how to carefully analyze layers of, of um societal deposits at a given site. Um, I mean, throughout uh, Israel and Palestine these days, uh, including parts of Israel, you'll hear about tells, right? You guys, I am sure, know about the tells, sometimes spelled T-E-L or T-E-L-L. Uh, and there's an Arabic and a, and a Hebrew variant, the same Semitic root. It means a mound, a heap, yeah. uh, or even a hill. And so uh, that's for all the listeners. That's, that's a freebie. A little bit of Hebrew or Arabic. You're but, welcome, you guys. You're yeah, welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> but whenever you have a tell, you're dealing with a mound. And in many cases, uh, it's a mound that was formed at least partially through human agency, not just a natural mound, uh, but it, it grew up in size over time, in height, because of a number of peoples living there over its history. And, and you can talk- see a lot of those in Arkansas from ancient Native Americans. We saw some uh, last year or the year before last where we went on vacation out there. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. anyway sorry. Keep going. No, no. Well, um, so, you know, some of these mounds uh, show occupation levels from a number of different epochs of history. Um, uh, and one of the most famous ones is Tel Sultan. It's called these days. Uh, that corresponds to the biblical city of Jericho. Uh, so, um, you know, digs at the site, ha- having gone out now generations, um, uh, uncovered that this city, this location had multiple occupation layers, the oldest of them going back to the Neolithic era, the, the new Stone Age. Wow. Um, yeah. In, in other words, it is at least one of, if not the oldest attestable uh, city. Um, so that's it's incredible, a, man. It's a, you know, world heritage site. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's fascinating alone, you know, and that's, you don't even have to be interested, you know, have a vested interest in Bible just to geek out about that. You know, that is cool. 
Um, but then add to that, that, that for those of us who grew up reading the Bible, we think, oh man, Jericho, you know, we heard about what went down there. And, and so the place takes on this added mystique um, for what would have been a much later culture. Uh, as is described in that context, you know, we we picture Joshua and the Israelites based on the story and where it sits in relation to other stories, um, supposedly being sometime in the late Bronze Age, um, and now I mean even that's debated among even even among those who hold that all these events happened, you're not going to get a consistency about when it happened, mm-hmm. but basically we can lump it into you know late Bronze Age. There's pretty much uh, general agreement about that. Um, so that, on the one hand, makes a lot of sense based on uh, a lot of archaeological data, both within uh, the Levant, that is to say the regions of Syria, Palestine, uh, but also other parts of the Mediterranean worlds. We know of that, uh, what's called the Bronze Age catastrophe or Bronze Age collapse, right, um, that led into the Iron Age. And so some thing or really a number of things were happening at that time. Some of them seem to have been natural disasters, uh, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, things of that nature. In other cases, wars were happening uh, that displaced people. But for multiple reasons, a number of kingdoms and empires fell at that time. So the once great uh, Hittite empire crumbled uh, by the end of the Bronze Age, going into the Iron Age, and it was not what it what it once was. Uh, Egypt uh, reached its height before the end of the the Bronze Age. So uh, the old, middle, and new kingdom periods, the greatest of the dynasties, by the time that the Iron Age begins, around 1200 BC, Egypt has pretty much played out its most famous history. Um, And its biggest monuments, the stuff that we remember, like the the Great Pyramid, that stuff is really ancient, really old. Mm -hmm. Um, So... For one thing, we can say that, yeah, there were cultural shifts and a number of migrating peoples around this time in history, late Bronze Age and beginning of Iron Age. Um, That would line up. But just keep in mind, that doesn't mean confirmation of this specific story that we're being told. Yeah, Uh, it would just that wouldn't deny that it might might line up pretty nicely. But when it comes to a city like Jericho, the fascinating thing is with all the cultural shifts and the number of cities that were were falling at the time, uh, Jericho was not occupied at the time, late Bronze Age. So that's what these digs uh, found. And archaeologists uh, don't just make haphazard guesses. Uh, they, they analyze the data. They compare with other sites. It's uh, not some sort of arbitrary yeah, process. Right. Of, oh, we're just going to say that this didn't happen. I mean, this that's is, right. Yeah, they're they're being as fair as they possibly can be. That's with, right, and uh, reserving reserving judgment as much as possible. Um, and th- this is what's so tricky. You know, the archaeological community wants to get their their stuff out there and get the public excited because you get funded you know, that way. Um, but at the same time, if they're not careful with how that message is heard, mm-hmm. the public will run wild with it. You know, they, they might, um, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of some example off the top of my head. Like um, they might find some little uh, 
toy that says the name Yeshua on it in Hebrew. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, from Second Temple period, and you know, Yeshua. That's Jesus. This was Jesus's toy. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and jumps. And sometimes you don't even need a name on it. They'll just go ahead and say, "Yeah, this was Jesus's toy." Um, you know, that's that's how these things will sometimes be spun. Whoa in the public sphere, but archaeologists would say, we didn't say that. We just said, you know, we could date this to roughly that period. This is um, the type of toy that a boy like Jesus may have played with yes. in this day and time. People like, Jesus is baby rattle. Oh my goodness. This is it. Yeah. We can clone Jesus. We have his DNA right here. Yeah. Okay. So, so let me kind of bring this just back. Cause I, we've been talking yeah. now for, yeah, for yeah. over an hour and a half. And I mean, there's so many different, so many different questions, yeah. and I still didn't that's your question. <laughs> well, no, I, but but two two questions that I have mm-hmm. that are more theological, and, and and some of these questions, you know, we've just been asking. We had on the outline and and just talking back and forth. And quite frankly, I'm pretty content with most of these views, um, assuming that none of them teach that the same God that was manifested through Jesus Christ. Um, would have actually commanded these types of mass killings, you know, and I, and I think there's enough alternative understandings. I think that some have more merit than others and that there's some that's a little more contextually perhaps fair or a little bit, I don't want to say a little bit more, uh, I don't know They they have a little bit more argumentation, I think behind them than others, but either way, I think there's enough out there that we can look at, that said, mm-hmm. where I personally still have so much trouble is when it comes to the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Because you have the writer of Hebrews who specifically mentions the walls of Jericho fallen. Mm-hmm. And he, the, you know, he's mentioning some of these mass killings. You have Peter who in his first sermon is talking about, or second sermon, who's talking about a lot of these things as, as he's giving Israel's history. Mm-hmm. And Golden Gay actually brings this point up. He said, if any of these killings were wrong, then, uh, where did it go? Then none of the writers of the New Testament believed so. And so my, my question is, what are we to make of that? And and I ask that question because, to me, the parabolic, mythicized view makes more sense to me than anything else. Because if this was, if these were stories that were later told, as by that point you did have the the Jewish nation firmly established, mm-hmm. and especially at the times of David. And, you know, and, and you, you start even Saul, David, Solomon, you start looking at the times of the kings and there's a lot of writing and they're going back and they're telling these stories just to demonstrate how powerful they were. You know, that makes a lot of sense because then the moral wouldn't be the moral of the story wouldn't be our God commanded uh, our people to kill your people. It was this is just how powerful our God is. Mm-hmm. And then if, if you look at the writer of Hebrews alluding back to that, once again, it's well. This is just a story demonstrating faithfulness. This is a story demonstrating the power of God. Uh, not that these things literally took place as far as we understand literal history today. You know, that makes sense to me, but it still doesn't make sense, <laughs> regardless of what way I've tried to slice this a hundred different ways. And I don't think it's ever going to make sense, but I, 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 there's, there's that mystery, regardless of what position you take. There's always going to be that mystery. And I want to say that there's not a single position 
when we're talking about these texts that you're going to be able to land on and say, ha, I finally have figured it out. There's This is airtight. This is bulletproof. I've finally been able to answer every single question with this view. That's just not going to happen because as soon as you find one view that answers one question, it's going to bring up another question you can't answer that maybe another view can answer. And so it's, it's a very complicated uh, issue and situation. But that's just something I wanted to bring up to see what your thoughts were is why would these New Testament writers appeal to that, especially if it wasn't within the nature of God. But even more importantly than that, why in the world would Jesus not correct such a gross misunderstanding of who God is? Mm-hmm. And and this has always just bothered me, that if God did not command that, mm-hmm. and yet it happened anyway, or even if it was some sort of parable, but it had been used to justify killing people. It had been used to justify hating people and mistreating people. Why would Jesus, when he had the opportunity on earth, not say, you missed it. This was not from me. This was this was your false understanding. How could you have misrepresented me like that? You know, Because I feel obligated to apologize when I read a text that I think misrepresents God. Mm-hmm. Why would God himself not point that out if he had been misrepresented? So just 20 20 questions there I asked you, and you got 30 seconds. What's your thoughts? Well, I mean, first of all, I I respect so much of of Golden Gate's scholarship, but on that particular point, I would say that he, he, to to so unequivocally make that sweeping statement, you know, no New Testament author— uh, you know, found an issue with it, or I can't remember the exact phrasing there, but, you know, um, I would go right for that point and say, oh, I think I could point out a few who did. <laughs> um, so, you know, just like we talked last time, and this is more because of my field, you know, I specialize in in Hebrew Bible. Um, I, I lean more on my understanding of those texts. But but as a Christian, you know, I, I read the New Testament as well. And, and uh you know, applying some of those same uh, methods of analyzing a text very carefully, what is the writer getting at? You can find places where it may not always be so strongly worded with the the key phrases you would be looking for, but you, if you look carefully, you can find it um, where these these authors don't all see eye to eye on it. So one of them, uh, well, I'll pick two examples from Matthew, which seem to raise issue with Joshua. Um, one of them is uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, when, when Jesus is itemizing some of the commands from the law and pointing out, and this is pertinent to what we were saying earlier, you know, Kevin, you especially were pointing out, Jesus builds continuity with the traditions, with the law mm-hmm. and with the prophets. He honors them. Um, so he begins, you know, this is supposed to be early in his ministry as Matthew's gospel is painting it. Um, where he is saying, okay, you want to know what my kingdom is about? This is what it's about. Don't think that I have come to destroy the the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. Um, And then he shows what he means by itemizing, you know, bit by bit. Here's here's a command you have heard. Now I tell you. Um, And that's that's interesting, that dynamic, because on the one hand, if, if we honor what Jesus is saying there, when he says, I did not come to abolish, to destroy, and in fact, I'm going to hold you responsible if you even try to get rid of one little stroke of the law. You know, not acceptable, not okay uh, with this kingdom of God that I come proclaiming. Um, so if he really means that, 
then presumably when he talks about each of these commands from said law, he must mean not to destroy that command, meaning I'm not going to dishonor it or break it, but I'm going to fulfill it, meaning I'm going to bring it to a, a fuller realization, you might say. Right? That's, that's some of the language that we use um, uh, with regards to what Matthew might have meant, or you know, uh, mm-hmm. anyway, in the in that gospel regarding that word "fulfill," what does "fulfill" mean? So when he says, "I come to fulfill," um, the way it's used in that gospel often seems to be, you know, bring to a greater uh, realization than we ever could have imagined before. And one of those laws that he he quotes is, you know, you have heard that it was said, "You shall love your neighbor." We all know that one. Mm-hmm. Not every Christian knows that that comes from law. It comes from <laughs> Leviticus. Um, but but he notice he also says, and you shall hate your enemy. Now, that's interesting because, you know, you don't hear that exact phrasing anywhere in Torah, uh, in, in the law or the prophets for that matter. But the very spirit of that command you do hear in Deuteronomy and you do hear in Joshua at the very least. Uh, And so I think what we could see Jesus doing in that narrative is saying, yeah, I see you, Joshua. I see you over there. Uh, And and this is what you have been, you've grown up, my fellow Jews. (laughs) You know, it's Jesus speaking, not me. Uh, Say, you know, we've grown up with this text telling us, love your neighbor, meaning love us, you know, our group, and hate the enemy out there. You might as well fill in that blank with, you know, the enemy is Canaanites and Hittites. Mm-hmm. And, and for them, you know, Romans as well. Let's throw them in. Um, but then he proceeds to tell them, but I tell you, uh, and serious Jesus followers ought to pay close attention whenever Jesus says, I tell you, um, that you shall love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so we've at least got to stop there and say, okay, Jesus seems fully conscious of what a book like Joshua teaches, which is essentially go out and hate your enemies. Be strong and courageous and slit some throats. Go and do it. Uh, And Jesus (laughs) says, yeah, I know. I'm fully aware of that. Here's what I tell you now. So at the very least, what he's saying is we've got a new game plan now. Right. That was the first half. Now going into the second half, uh, this is going to be something very different. Um, So what? So to summarize, then what you're basically saying is, Mm The whole argument or the the whole premise that Jesus and some of the New Testament writers didn't take issue that sh- that needs to be challenged itself because just because yeah. it, they didn't take issue and state it the same way we did didn't mean that it it's not there doesn't yeah. mean so that he might not, not say Joshua I'm thinking about you <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't um, have done that yeah and yeah. well let me ask you this um, and sorry Lee I. I I think you may have wanted to uh, ask a question too. But oh, you're I, good, brother. You guys are covering everything I was wanting to ask about. Well, so just keep on trucking. So we had Josh Scott. He's a he's a pastor um, that serves for a church, I believe, in Tennessee, Nashville, and he brought up this point before. I had never heard this point made, and it made a whole lot of sense to me. And in large part, it may just be because it kind of fits like, hey, this I'm looking for answers, so I found one. <laughs> but this made a whole lot of sense. He brought up Matthew 15, where Jesus is face to face with what is described as the Canaanite woman. Yeah. And yeah. Jesus is ultimately, and a lot of some of our audience actually were a bit shocked by what Josh said, but Josh said mm-hmm. Jesus was basically corrected 
by this woman, and mm-hmm. Jesus allowed himself to be corrected by this yeah. woman. And he, of course, ended up rewarding her for her faith. But then shortly thereafter, we see that he goes into a uh, quote-unquote Canaanite area, and mm-hmm. he ends up feeding the 4,000. And the point that Josh brought up is that if you look at how many's left over, it was seven loaves. And, uh, you know, he, then he took the seven loaves and the fish and, uh, he, you know, afterwards he picked up the baskets full and, um, you know, he, t- he talks about how many were left over and, uh, let's see where he brings, I'm trying to bring, uh, let's see. Yeah. It says he told the crowd to sit on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. They ate and they were satisfied after the disciples picked up seven baskets full that were left over. So the point that he brought up is that there were seven nations, these Canaanite nations that were to be destroyed. And then when Jesus fed the um, the 5,000 of the Jews, there was 12 baskets left over. So his point is that there was some Jewish symbolism here that Jesus was was utilizing, or at least kind of embedding in these, these instances, or at least the, the writer of Matthew brought up, and that is that Jesus was bringing together that which had been divided apart. And Mm -hmm. so, whereas before the Jews had the understanding, they were the ones, the Canaanites were to be destroyed. Jesus is now saying, no, I'm rewarding this woman's faith. Then I'm going to go over to a quote-unquote Canaanite territory, and I'm going to feed them, and how many were left over? Seven, signifying his blessing upon the Canaanite nations. Had you ever heard that explanation before? Or, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Is that that too much to read into? Maybe not. I mean, you know, seven and twelve, these are recurring numbers in the Bible and and always have at least the possibility that behind them is some some typology, some some suggestion of another narrative, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is the first time I, I had considered from that angle. Now, the funny thing was I was going to mention that that very same story of the Canaanite woman, at least, as another one of those cases where you would say, yeah, this seems to be, and you, you only find it in Matthew's version, right? Luke's version, she's called a Syrophoenician. Yeah, yeah, she's not considered a can Yeah, yeah. It's like okay, Syrophoenicians. They're not us, but they're not entirely bad, you know. They're not but Canaanites. Yeah, Canaanite. You know, phew, yeah. So, you know, and <laughs> you guys still around? <laughs> but, oh yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's like, what? Well, Jesus, kill her! Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come on, don't you? Haven't you read your Bible? Um, she's got Satan blood in her. <laughs> 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 but I, I think that is that's the author's point. I think that's exactly what he's going for. That he knows. Remember, Matthew is is the most Jewish sounding of the Gospels. It it anticipates a well informed Jewish audience. We might say more specifically a Jewish Christian audience. You know, they they seem to already be believers in Christ. But but um, the point is, his audience know their Hebrew Bible well, and to casually drop. Uh, this sort of title for the woman, she's a Canaanite woman, is never going to be casual. It will be yeah. picked up on by his audience. And especially, and, and here again, I mean, don't let me get too bogged down here because I think I talked about this last time, but it is so important to connect the name Jesus with Joshua, to understand that Jesus in Greek, Iesus, uh, is just, that's just the Greek rendering loose rendering of the Hebrew name uh, Yehoshua, or his nickname, Yeshua. Uh, so that's the name Joshua. And, and 
that's a shock to many of my students whenever I tell them that, you know, did you know Jesus's name is actually Josh? You know, it's, it's the nickname version of Joshua. It's Josh. Um, so, you know, he grew up Josh of Nazareth. That's how his friends knew him. Um, and, and, and Christ, as you know, you guys know, and, and I'm sure many of your listeners know too, Christ is not his last name. It's, it's a title. That's, that's just the Greek translation, uh, meaning anointed for the Hebrew Mashiach, anointed one. Um, and so he didn't even grow up with that title. You know, it's not like everybody knew, um, so all of this to say, if you've got a, if you've got this young man who is getting out there into the world doing incredible signs, wonders from God, uh, and clearly the power of God is at work w- within him, and um, and his name is Joshua, you're gonna, as as part of that Jewish audience, you're going to start connecting him with the Joshua of old through whom God likewise worked wonders, the text tell us, right? Um, And so uh, then if you pay close attention, there are a number of things that the two of them do that parallel each other. I mean, they both have a moment where they go down to the Jordan River, for example. Um, You know, for the Joshua of old, um, the the waters part for him in Israel. Uh, For Joshua of Nazareth, uh, the heavens part. You know, but it's it's a Jordan scene that establishes his authority in much the same way that the Jordan scene in Joshua's book established him as the next appointed leader of God's people. You're blowing um, my mind right now. So Keep cool going, stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, and then to realize, you know, the name Joshua means he saves which seems pretty pretty clear to imply in the text of Joshua and in, in the accounts of him in the Pentateuch as well, that he is destined by Yahweh to be a, a savior figure like Moses was for his people, right? So God's going to be um, working salvation for Israel through this man. Uh, it's a good reminder to us that salvation was not always a spiritualized thing. For, for God's people. For, you know, for Israel, the first real major account of salvation that they were concerned with was who will save us from these Egyptians and get us out of their land and you know, break these chains. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't about the salvation of their souls. Um, and the way that Joshua saves uh, is not exactly what would look like salvation to Christians either. He, he saves Israel, meaning he wins their battles for them. He helps them uh, fight and win against the Canaanite peoples, uh, and that counts as salvation in that context. So when Joshua of Nazareth comes on the scene and the power of God is at work in him, people start to think, all right, yeah, we're going to see some, you know, some cracking of Roman skulls here. You know, this this is going to be great Uh, because that's how the narrative had played out so far with anybody named Joshua. He was supposed to do that. And then this Joshua does the surprising thing. Yes, the power of God is at work in him, but he says, well, plans have changed. I know that in, in old times, our sacred texts have told us, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And, and again, you know, book of Joshua does teach that. But now the mission is love your enemies. And for them, I mean, first on that would enter on their minds is probably Romans. They're probably thinking, Oh, yeah. Enemy list, Romans first, you know. Yeah. He's saying, guess what, guys? For the kingdom of, of heaven, 
to follow that ethic, which I come proclaiming, uh, you have got to love those guys. You've got to love the Romans. Man, like, okay, so this is why we just need to have you back on our show every week because (laughs) like I I disagree with that. I had, I had never thought about how Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is alluding to some of these stories. And, and while you were talking, I was, I went to Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse one and two. Mm -hmm. And this is, and and I want to read this side by side with what Jesus said, because to me, this, now that you've brought this up, Mm -hmm. it's like Jesus is directly talking about this. And especially if the seven baskets symbolize the, the seven nations now being part of the fellowship, Mm -hmm. but it says when the Lord, your God brings you into the land, you're entering to possess and drives out before you many nations. And he goes and he names them. He said, seven nations larger and stronger than you Mm -hmm. make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Yeah, show them no mercy. Right. Then you come to Luke 6:35, love your enemies, but but I tell you, love your enemies, do good to them. And then verse 36 of Luke chapter 6 says, and be merciful to them just as your father is merciful. Yeah. Like there is no way someone's going to tell me that you can harmonize Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2 in Luke 6, 36 and say, no, no, that's teaching the same thing. Clearly, Jesus is drawing a distinction between what was going on there and what's now going on that he has he is now walking the earth. And, and this is this is what bugs me the most, because I quite frankly, I, I leave room for all sorts of interpretations when it comes to the genocide the genocide text. And it's, by the way, it's not just the genocide text, right? There's a lot of what we call violent texts that are happening in the Bible. It's not like if we just get rid of, you know, Joshua, everything just fits perfectly. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's all throughout. Look at what all David did. I mean, David, you know, it's going to cut the foreskins off of everybody here. But when you, when you, when you look at what is said in Deuteronomy and what is said in Luke, the problem I do have is when Christians say, oh, no, no, that's just the wrath of God in Deuteronomy and the love of God in Luke 6, and they're all one and the same. No, they're not. I mean, this is this is two completely different images and, and of, of, of what the expectation is of the followers of God and what God looks like and who he is, who his nature is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even with the idea of do not show them pity, do not be compassionate, and Luke chapter 6, verse 36 says, uh, to be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. Very different, very different tones when you're comparing them. And so I had just never thought of that before. Um, that is that is strong stuff, man. That is really good. I, well, I, I it, appreciate you bringing that up. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it continues throughout the gospel account, too. You know, not just there, but but so when he sees the Canaanite woman, and again, when we're remembering that for that audience, including the Greek readers, who if they read the Septuagint, then the book of Joshua is called the book of Jesus. You know, so when they come to, oh, Joshua meets a Canaanite woman, once again, they're going to fill in the blanks. Oh, yeah, I know what's going to happen. He's going to kill her, right? And he does Oh, Joshua he, drove them out and Jesus brought her. Yeah, Jesus went and fed them, them and invited them <laughs> yeah, in. Man. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, what, is, stuff. what does Joshua do to the five Amorite kings? Um, you know, this is a point that I impress upon my students because you can miss it. When he defeats the five Amorite kings in the southern regions, um, and this is uh, what chapters 10 and, and 11 uh, of Joshua, um, the text says that he he takes their, well, he takes them out of the cave where they had been hiding 
when they when they saw that they were losing. Um, and then he has his men stand on their necks just to add, you know, insult to injury. Uh, then he kills them. And then the text says he hangs their bodies on trees. Uh, but hang, the word there is tala in the Hebrew, which uh, is not hanging with a noose. It's more like fastening or suspending. So the point is that he's not strangling them to death. He had already killed them in the text. Mm-hmm. He is displaying their corpses as an object lesson. This is what happens to the enemies of Yahweh and Israel. Uh, and uh, and even the word trees might be a mistranslation. I mean, it could be little trees, but the very same word could stand for any object made of wood, like a pole. Or, if you're thinking in the Roman system, like a crucifix. So I, I'm... I might sound like I'm stretching things, but I'm really not. What Joshua did is essentially no different in purpose than what Romans were doing with enemies of the state, crucifying them um, to send a message to any would-be enemies, don't cross us or this happened to you. Leaving their bodies up for a while, well past death, um, to say, yeah, you don't cross us. And that's what Joshua did. And in the text of Joshua, that is celebrated. As if to say, yeah, Yahweh gave us the victory, and this is what we should do to all of our enemies. And these are not the last bodies that you'll see, uh, you know, uh, stapled up to to wooden beams. It's going to happen again. And and yet, what happens when Joshua 2.0 comes along? Joshua of Nazareth, with all the power of God at work within him, uh, bringing healings, walking on water, commanding the elements, and all that. Uh, and when he comes head-to-head with the religious authorities and with the Romans, um, he gets crucified. And it's the biggest shock, you know. I mean, for for people of our generation, you know, this is like when we first saw the Matrix, the first Matrix, you know. uh, You know, and we thought, no, he can't get shot. He's supposed to be the one. Does that resonate with you guys, or is that just... Yeah. I don't know. No, no, no it, I like The Matrix. Yeah, I didn't it, like the last one. The last one was okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, but but that first one, you know, <laughs> when it was fresh and new, 1999, right? I was there in theaters. Me and, too! You know, and here I was, you know, young Christian, and I'm thinking, you know, Neil's supposed to be the one. Yeah, and, you know, missing, of course, that all the messianic kind of language behind that. But he's the one, and oh, man, he's going to have the power to... Con- to control the agent Smith and all of that. Um, and then he's, he gets shot multiple times. Like, no, it's not supposed to go down this way. And, oh, the Wachowskis, they were, you know, they were too sharp for us. Um, they were, they were re-spinning in, in very different clothing. Mm-hmm. The surprise factor of the crucifixion. Yeah. For Jesus' disciple. I, you know, I was in eighth grade when that came out, and uh, I went to a Christian school, and they, I remember we, we once it came out on video, a video at that time, uh, we watched it, and VHS. I think maybe, yeah, it may have been DVD, I don't know, but we watched it, and I think it was DVD, I don't know, but we watched it, and uh, the Bible teacher did a whole series on the Matrix and uh-huh. how it is nothing more than the story of Jesus. And, the, you know, the undertones, the crucifixion, like, oh, that is cool. That is really neat. But yeah. I'd never heard that before, um, paralleling that with the kings being hung and strung up and yeah. uh, comparing that with Jesus. And, I, you know, I think that there's just so much of that that we miss today in the way that we read the Bible. 
because mm-hmm. we want to be able to just to pick up the Bible and immediately apply it, immediately know what's going on. And in large part, that's just our culture too. We mm-hmm. we don't really spend a whole lot of time trying to to dig deep to figure out how the original audience would have read that yeah. and what it would have meant to them and what it would have meant to the earliest Christians when they were reading it. And, you know, back to, to even Golden Gay's point of, well, all of the writers of the New Testament, you know, they didn't have issue. Well, he really doesn't know that. Um, quoting a passage or alluding to a passage isn't an endorsement of your interpretation of that passage, right? It's mm-hmm. just you're, you're endorsing that story for a particular reason. And even in, in the book of Hebrews, yeah. for example, when some of these stories are being alluded to, it, we don't really know what all is supposed to be endorsed in that story. Mm-hmm. you know. So for us to say, oh, well, you know, Jesus is coming like a thief in the night, so I can go and murder, or I can go and steal things because Jesus is coming like a thief in the night. Well, nah, that that's not really an endorsement of, on thievery. That's, that's just a simile, right? <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. And so when some of these writers are alluding to certain points, even talking about Jonah or talking about Job, doesn't mean we're endorsing, you know, they are endorsing the historicity. It doesn't mean that they are endorsing everything about that story, but a particular point for the purpose that they were using when they were writing that letter. The meaning was more important than any literal quote truth that we may extrapolate from that. Yeah. Parables, stories, metaphors, similes, all those things I think we all have to be careful with and say, oh, well, this is an endorsement on this is history, or this is an endorsement on this action, or this is an endorsement on this practice, whatever it might be, that's may have not been in the author's mind at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, Grant, I think you absolutely laid to rest the idea that Jesus did not speak out against the, the genocides. I, I think that, I mean, that was spoken of masterfully. That was awesome, and, man, yeah. It, it, yeah, that was phenomenal. And with the kings, those five kings, man, I had never heard that either. I mean, I had heard, of course, I knew that story. It was one of my favorite stories. The bloody stories of the Old Testament were some of my favorites when I was a kid. And I I think that's true for most, you know, for most young males, for most young men, of course, that's going to be the case. But, you (laughs) know, Jehu, my favorite king of Israel by far, whenever I was a kid, Jehu was my favorite. He going, he killing them all, you know, he's getting after it. You know, I tell you, I I perked up. I remember... uh, (laughs) I can picture it in my mind, this Christian summer camp. Uh, I I must have been 10 or 11, and we were going to obligatory Bible hour. Uh, You know, you had to pay your dues so that you could play three ball soccer and, you know, cool stuff like that. And at the time, you know, I wasn't geeking out like I do now over these texts. Uh, But for one reason or another, uh, one of the counselors was teaching this class on judges to, you know, our cabin made up of all these young boys. And, uh, and he, he gets to the part uh, of, of uh, Ehud driving yeah. <laughs> the sword into the, the left-handed belt. swordsman. And, <laughs> oh, and you can bet all of us you know, young boys who were, you know, we were dozing because we hadn't gotten enough sleep the previous night, but we all sat up straight and, and we demanded that he say that again. What was that? <laughs> and, it's, and it fat went over and yeah. ate the sword. Yeah. yeah. It was like, yeah. But as kids, we eat that up. But yeah. as you get older, hopefully you learn that there are more important things. (laughs) Well, absolutely. And just the, just that, that type and anti-type of those Kings being hung from the tree with Jesus who was hanged from a tree. It's, it's mind blowing. And in, in Jesus's whole ministry, you see that as a, 
a course correction against that, that genocide narrative. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things, if, if no one takes anything else away from this conversation that we've had, you know, that's gone, it does not feel like we have been talking for over two hours. It's, it, this has been a phenomenal conversation, yeah. but, but I am feeling compelled to get things wrapped up myself. Yeah. I'm having some biological imperatives that must be attended to momentarily. I was going to, I was delicately. just going to I was going to say real quick, just to summarize, what you're saying is that's the Old Testament. We can just ignore it. Just follow Jesus, right? I mean, that's <laughs> just the, follow Jesus. That's just it. Kidding. Yeah, you just bet. kidding. Well, it's there. I mean, this is even in two hours of just of great conversation and gr- in incredibly interesting discussion. This is a problem that has been going on, like we said earlier, for over 2,000 years. and Ever since Jesus came on the scene. Ever since Jesus came on the scene, even yeah. before then. And, and even before then, yeah. Honestly. Even before That's then. That's true, yeah. And yeah. It's, it's not a problem we're going to solve in a two-hour podcast, but the goal wasn't ever to solve it. It was to discuss with someone who has the bona fides to actually speak to this as an authority to examine some of these perspectives that exist in terms of the genocide, you know, you have that old, that old, you know, statement that, well, God's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. If he says to kill people, you can kill people. We've had the Nephilim view that we've discussed. We've had the, uh, oh man, what did we discuss after the Nephilim view? (laughs) (laughs) You talked about so many things. Well, that, uh, the command was not to actually, uh, exterminate them out. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. To drive them out. And then we talked about the idea that the genocides, did happen, but they weren't commanded of God. And then we also talked about, um, lastly, what we've wrapped up with tonight, that they never did even happen. And then we've talked about Jesus and how he undoes so much of that. And that only scratches the surface. Those are the kind of the four big perspectives that exist on it. But there are more nuanced perspectives out there. There are other things out there that people have written about that they have talked about there's there's about a million different ways that that these genocides can be addressed and not explained away but addressed I, whenever we ignore it or we try to cop out by saying that and i really do believe that it is a cop out to say that well god's sovereign he can do whatever he wants that doesn't answer the question it just brushes the question aside and at the very least these other these other perspectives that we have engaged with these other ways of understanding these genocides at the very least, they address the question and wrestle with it and try to deal with it. And that's what we all need to do. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, whatever someone believes about those genocides, it's, it's, it can be problematic. But if we see in Jesus the, the culmination of the story of God and the story of Israel, and as it translates from a physical nation into a spiritual nation, we see that at least from my perspective, and I'm just, I'm not going to pretend to speak for either one of you, but for me, I take a lot of comfort in knowing the genocides, whether they happen or whether they didn't happen from my understanding, it's not something that a loving God would sanction. It's not something that a loving God would do from my perspective. That explanation makes the most sense. This is something that was, you know, that the Israelites, they use their time, they use their place, they use their culture to do something and make sense of it within that cultural framework. And then you have Jesus for all time coming along and saying, oh, no, 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 no. This isn't how we need to do things here. We don't do that here as a, as a, the Black Panther was fond of saying, we don't do that here. <laughs> and in that sense, that that to me is incredibly helpful. So, Grant, do you have anything else that you want to throw in there before we we wrap this up and bring our conversation to a close tonight? 
Well, I think you said it so well yourself um, that it might help to think of this as a process rather than looking at the scriptures as uh, fixed perfection. Um, yeah. You know, but if you view it the way that uh, you know, growth of plants and animals is also God given, uh, a God breathed process. And at what point is it perfect? Is the seed perfect? Is the sprout perfect? Is the full grown thing perfect? It, it's it's all you know working towards something, uh, and and every one of those steps is somehow meaningful. Uh, and if we can at least entertain an idea like that for the scriptures, that what if the way that God is working in them is is with our frailties? And Israel had frailties, just like every nation does. <laughs> Uh, just like all of all of us do as individuals, then we might be able to see the humanity as well as the spirit of God in these texts. And that's, I mean, that's incarnation right there. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. It's beautiful. Well, so and I want to say this too, uh, which I we've we've got to let you go. I know, but is it? By the way, first of all, would you be willing to come back on? Because I'm sure that we're going to get a lot of questions about this, um, and maybe just kind of get into a little more depth with specific questions, you know, cause we've kind of talked about more general concepts in this episode. And if there are some specific questions, would you be willing to, to come on and talk about those a little bit? Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause I think this is going to be a, an episode that gets a lot of people's attention is and something that everyone's going to be interested in. Um, but also we, cause this, this is really the first time I'd ever heard it put the way that you put it with Jesus almost as a polemic with Joshua, right? I mean, like, like, you know, where you're looking at Jesus and Joshua and you're, you're paralleling one with the other and how there was this understanding of war and hatred and no mercy. <laughs> Don't allow your eye to pity them. And then here you have Jesus who comes along and literally teaches the exact opposite. I mean, literally the exact opposite and not just teaches, but demonstrates that throughout his whole ministry. Yeah. And to me, that is so powerful. And I've never just, I guess I had contemplated it in different ways, but never specifically like that. And, you know, ultimately is this not one of the very reasons why so many of the Jewish elite and Jewish leaders, those trained religiously opposed Jesus because they saw that the message he was teaching was so different than the message that they they were taught to believe in. I mean, right? Like when when you look at they were they were wanting a physical warrior, a domineering king, and Jesus was not fitting that. He was going to the Gentile. He wasn't killing the Gentiles or saying, "Hey, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna become a zealot myself." He was saying, "No." Let's love the Gentiles and let's eat with the Gentiles. I mean, that's one of the underlying reasons why uh, the so many of the Jewish leaders wanted to put Jesus to death because they thought that he was he was it was blasphemous. How dare him claim that he's God? I mean, he's not do he's not the true King of Israel. He's not who Jesus is supposed to look like. We're looking for David. We're looking for Joshua. We're not looking for for Jesus, right? I mean, would that be fair to say? Well, I'll leave you with this because one, this would crack open a whole nother podcast. But I will say, uh, if you pay attention to Jesus's trial, as told in the Gospels, uh, the the members of the Sanhedrin do not seem to have issue with that title, Son of God. In fact, uh, that is understood as a messianic title to mm -hmm. be Son of God, like in Psalm two, uh, in its original context. That 
that meant that you were at least adoptively understood as taken on by Yahweh God. So they're pushing him toward that um, more so because it'll get him in trouble with Rome if he declares yeah, yeah. that. And instead, you know, he's he's much more in favor of the title Son of Man. Interesting. Uh, but that's a whole nother. <laughs> you don't want to start that now. <laughs> uh, well, we'll hit that later on this year. We'll have you come yeah. back after the Q&A that hopefully will arise from this. And we'll just have you on. We'll talk about that next okay. time. That'd this be is awesome. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, Grant, once again, brother, thank you so much for coming on. Your your scholarship is highly appreciated. You're articulate. You state things very, very well. You're fun to converse with. You're fun to listen to. You're incredibly interesting, and you brought out a lot of interesting points tonight. So thank you so, so, so much for taking You're time to be with us. Man. My head is getting bigger. <laughs> well, hey, uh, well, I'm, stop I'm so you can actually guys. fit through the yeah. door. So, <laughs> Well, thank you so much. And to all of our listeners, we want to thank you guys as well. We thank you each and every time, and it's because we really mean it. We appreciate all of you. We appreciate you sharing this podcast with others for spreading the word about what we're trying to do and the good that this podcast is trying to do. And we really feel like that slowly but surely we're accomplishing that mission to help others you know, make sense of some of the messiness that exists within Christianity and, and how to rearticulate your faith from the ashes of toxicity that, that so often can derail the faith of so many. And that's derailed mine in the past as well. So thank you all so much. Share this podcast with your friends. Give us that five-star review on iTunes or Spotify or whatever platform you choose to consume this podcast on. We love you all very, very much. We appreciate you. We look forward to hearing from you. We'll see you soon.